Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. He was position number six. Now he goes up one place. Greetings and welcome to 97 to 99 FM Radio Joystick with a special side quest broadcast to the classic video game challenge TV show Games Master. I am one of your hosts, Luke Owen, and I may have to stop this episode in case the government think it's actually Russian in origin. And often mistaken for an extraterrestrial root vegetable, I am Ash Versus. I was trying to go smashy and nicey, and I just went straight to Dick Van Dyke. One of the, my big takeaways from this episode is it's amazing that 1996 Radio 1 was still quite smashy and nicey. Like, I thought that was early 90s, late 80s, but no, no, here we are. Mark Goodyear, Nicky Campbell. It's smashy, it's nicey. Which is weird, because this was actually part of the new era of Radio 1. A lot of the old DJs had gone, and this was the fresh new blood. Chris Evans was on the scene. But getting ahead of ourselves. We are getting ahead of ourselves. You're absolutely right. This radio broadcast aired on August 4th, 1996. Olympic Summer Games and Formula One Grand Prix 2 topped the video game charts while the Spice Girls are top of the pops with Wannabe and Twister is your UK box office number one. before of deciding that of the two summer blockbusters we kind of preferred twister don't get me wrong independence day a very fun blockbuster film you know i will watch it once a year 
usually around the 4th of July. But Twister is a film I'll pop on any damn time I like. It's just a fun film. However, Twister did not have a companion piece radio drama. More's the pity, I think, because Independence Day UK gives an alternative perspective to the alien invasion of 1996. A distinctly British perspective and also fixes a few plot holes along the way. It's a fascinating little thing, isn't it? Because when we first started doing this podcast, you said to me pretty early doors, oh, that'll be a really fun bonus episode when we reach it in the timeline because Games Master has a fist fight with an alien. That's a really fun thing for us to talk about. And it's not something I'm actually that au fait with. It's not something that's ever really been on my radar as Independence Day UK. So this is, a lot of this is actually very new to me, which is bizarre because I've, I've always very much enjoyed radio dramas and I loved listening to them, didn't you, on, on Radio 4? That was like my Sunday bath time type etiquette was to listen to the, the, the radio plays and whatnot on Radio 4. But this is one that's never really been uh, in a rotation for me. Before we get into the meat of it, I mean, you mentioned you already listened to radio plays. Did you know that 2022 is the 100th anniversary of the birth of the full cast radio drama well that's it's very nice that we're doing this then ish it's complicated technically before 1922 there were these things called theater phones which had been around since actually the end of the previous century and the idea behind that was there were microphones in a theater the sound signal would be carried across essentially telephone lines and you could stand or sit in a booth and listen to a performance from a theatre. It could be music hall, it could be an opera, it could be some other form of play or performance. But technically, a full-cast audio drama. Didn't really take off in America, mainly European. Did stick around for about 40 years. Finished off in 1932, primarily because of the rise of the radio drama. But full-cast radio drama began in 1922 in America. And what differentiated between, say, performances of uh, musicals in theatres that were captured for radio or, or kind of other sort of operas or kind of more highbrow things is 1922 when WJZ, a radio station in New York, put together its kind of own cast of rotating players who started performing regular broadcasts, regular plays from August 1922. Imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. WLW in Cincinnati followed later that year. And by 1923, they'd stopped doing adaptations of plays. They'd stopped doing adaptations of books. And original dramas were being written for the radio. Sadly, there isn't much of this era because people weren't recording stuff in 1922 and 1923. There's a piece of radio drama that is incredibly important to the existence of Independence Day UK, and I find it a minor miracle I've actually got a copy of that. Over here in the UK, we were a few years behind, but the BBC followed in about 1924 in a one-act play called A Comedy of Danger, which was a play about a group of people trapped in a coal mine. We shall suffocate or starve, or, or both, my dear, in each other's arms. Oh, Jack. Even death shall not part us. Oh, Jack, don't. It's too awful. Our poor young lives cut so short. Oh, don't. Don't. There'll be articles in all the newspapers. Oh, I wish I could read them. You can't have your funeral and watch it, young lady. Oh, this is fun. <laughs> I wouldn't have missed it for anything. Also kind of an example of immersive theatre, because before the broadcast, they said, this play takes place in the dark. Therefore, close your eyes when you listen to it. 
One of the big titles that you'll hear us talk about and our guest, who we'll be hearing from later, talk about is Awesome Wells' radio presentation of H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds. It was, much in the same way as Independence Day UK, presented half as a live news report and then the latter half as a more traditional drama. Ladies and gentlemen, we interrupt our program of dance music to bring you a special bulletin from the Intercontinental Radio News. At 20 minutes before 8 central time, Professor Farrell of the Mount Jennings Observatory, Chicago, Illinois, reports observing several explosions of incandescent gas occurring at regular intervals on the planet Mars. The spectroscope indicates the gas to be hydrogen and moving toward the Earth with enormous velocity. Professor Pearson of the observatory at Princeton confirms Farrell's observation and describes the phenomenon as, quote, like a jet of blue flame shot from a gun, unquote. We now return you to the music of Ramon Raquello playing for you in the Meridian Room of the Park Plaza Hotel situated in downtown New York. It caused a bit of a panic to the point where Orson Welles kind of had to go and make a bit of an apology for making people think that we may actually be getting invaded by aliens. It's one of the sort of famous tales of radio, really, those really early days when there wasn't much else in the way of entertainment around. So, you know, you would just sit around the wireless with your family and whatnot, and you would hear this, and then this thing comes on that's presented as real life, and people just believed it was real. They kind of, you know, they reference it at the start of Independence Day UK, where it's the people took up arms and actually went outside to try and go and fight little green men that were invading from Mars, not realizing that what they were listening to was a drama. And I can't really imagine like what your reaction to that would be once you figured out or you learn that this was just a radio drama. Do you shrug it off? Do you have a chuckle? Or do you get really angry that you were fooled and they, they you know, and they, they caused this, this level of panic? It's one of the most interesting and sort of funny, in hindsight, little bits of radio and multimedia history. We're only 10 years off, really, from the 100th anniversary of that happening. You know, what, 15 years or so away from the 100th anniversary of that happening. And I love it as a story. I love it as a piece of pop culture iconography. There were so many things that kind of lent into it being a real event. Uh, there were no commercial breaks. Uh, there were no interruptions. The first break in the drama came after the faux news report had taken place. And yeah, in the days afterwards, there was a lot of outrage in the media. I'm not sure how much of it was public outrage and how much of it was media outrage, but it was being described as deceptive. There was an outcry against broadcasters, calls for the FCC to step in and take action. Wells had to apologise at a news conference. He got away with it, essentially. The planet Mars. I'm extremely surprised to learn that a story which has become familiar to children through the medium of comic strips and uh, many succeeding novels and adventure stories should have had such an immediate and profound effect upon radio listeners. But what it did do was it launched his career because he was suddenly very strongly in the public eye. 
and also from a production point of view, gave him a reputation as something of an innovative storyteller and someone that is not afraid to take risks and do different things. Without War of the Worlds, we would not have had him as Unicron. There is indeed that. We would not have had him as Unicron. That is a connection I'd not made until this point. What a world it could have been. It would have had a different voice for Unicron. Would it shock you, Luke, as it actually did me, to find out Orson Welles was not the first person to pull this stunt? Really now? In 1926, Ronald Knox, who was a regular broadcaster for the then kind of starting up BBC, presented a kind of fake live news report in January of that year called Broadcasting the Barricades. It was presented as a live report of a revolution sweeping across London. It mixed in reports of people, including government ministers, being lynched, as well as key London landmarks being destroyed. I mean, there was even a section containing music from the Savoy Hotel, where the hotel was set fire to and destroyed whilst the band were playing, and so everything fell apart. It's kind of as dramatic as what Wells did, on a smaller scale. I mean, it's more believable, for one. But what really caused a bit of a problem was, this took place in January 1926, when there was very, very heavy snowfall and a very harsh winter rolling across the country. So a lot of people didn't have access to any other form of broadcast. They didn't have access to newspapers for the next couple of days. And in some areas, it caused a panic because people had no way of verifying whether or not there was a revolution rolling up the country towards them. You would have thought, though, if you'd have just tuned into the wireless the following day that no other news was talking about it, that it might have been something and nothing. Given the way broadcasting worked then, when it wasn't a continuous feed of information, broadcasting took place at specific times and specific places, there would be a window. You know, there would be that time period between the end of that broadcast, and maybe you didn't even finish the broadcast, maybe you were already running next door to go, have you listened to this? And the next morning, and maybe the afternoon news, before that would be verified. I mean, realistically, with the HG Wells thing some years later, people could just go outside and go... Yeah, no heat ray. It's Halloween. Yeah, it, it's kind of the same with, with Independence Day UK. Like, you know, the opening monologue to this is that in 1938, H.G. Wells made this thing and it caused mass hysteria. It could never happen again, but could it? And I was like, well, probably not if you're telling people ahead of time that it's fake. But also, you know, in 1996, it was a much easier for you to go and find other things to verify that this is just a radio drama that is being played on Radio 1. I mean, they gave it the Fox fanfare at the beginning. It was very clearly marked as not being a real thing, but that didn't stop them playing every trick in the book during the news broadcast section, which I'm really looking forward to going over. To stick with the BBC for a bit, because that is where this broadcast and the American side, while fascinating and includes all sorts of iconic pop culture characters getting serials like the Lone Ranger, Dick Tracy, genre artists getting their start in there. Um, some guy you may have heard of called Rod Serling. Does his name ring a bell? Indeed he does. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, that's, that is the, the key to the Twilight Zone getting launched was Playhouse Theatre. And that's actually what a lot of my radio play knowledge was uh, from like back in the day was listening to the Twilight Zone on tape and then tracking down other twi- other Rod Serling things. In fact, actually, many years ago, back in my, my Twilight Zone podcasting days, I also used to help curate, because it was then within the public domain, I, I was to help curate a podcast feed that was just releasing old science fiction radio plays into a podcast feed, an RSS feed. So you could just 
download and we just sort of release them on a weekly basis. Here is your radio play for this week. And they were just these sort of small science fiction tales that used to air in the 1950s and 60s. That's kind of what my era and sort of what I go towards when I think of this type of genre. I love some of those old American uh, sci-fi series. Uh, X-1 is always a favourite of mine. That was one of the ones we used to do, yeah. The National Broadcasting Company, in cooperation with Galaxy's science fiction magazine, presents X-1. Tonight's story, The Sea Shoot, by Isaac Asimov. So many amazing authors got their start there. Stories that actually hold up remarkably well today. Also, it's lovely to hear Americans uh, say the word robot as opposed to robot. It was a different time, Luke. Well, I mean, someone in my office has just gotten into the Twilight Zone. That was their birthday present this year, was that uh, the, the latest Blu-ray set of all of the Twilight Zone episodes. And he just came in one day and he's just like, are they purposefully saying robots? And I was like, yes, that's just, that was the way it was pronounced at the time. We say robot, they say robot. We say herbs, they say herbs. It's a culture thing. Speaking of culture, to skip back to the BBC... Classical dramatizations kind of ruled the BBC radio drama output for most of the 1930s. As time went on, you did get more modern playwrights and novelists having their work adapted. And then, as we ticked over into the 1940s, productions increased both in quantity and scope, made good use of the recently formed Drama Repertory Company, which was the equivalent of the rotating cast that had existed for the American stations. And we started to get original dramatic presentations and more importantly, serials. One of the ones that I've heard of, but I've not heard any of the original broadcasts. I think I've only heard the more later broadcasts and I've seen the Hammer films was Dick Barton's Special Agent. Oh, what's this? Storm, you're wanting for to see? Yes, please. What's all this stuff? Why, it looks like sticks of... Dynamite, Mr. Barton which is precisely what it is. Welcome to the Coastal Queen. Well, well, if it isn't Uncle Charlie. Charles, watch him. Now, don't start. Oh. Add a boy, sir. Bash off. Back to the dynamite ropes. Right. They don't fire then, otherwise we all go up. Are you hurt, Charles? Which ran from the mid-40s to the early 50s for like 700 episodes. So major, major output and span off into three films. It would have been four films, but the lead actor in the film uh, died actually on the way back from a rap party for the third film, and so it kind of put the kibosh on it. The radio series the films were based on, that met its end in 1951, and was replaced by this kind of little rural life series about a kind of a nice rural community, a farm. It's called The Archers. what I said when you first brought me home in the car from London. What, uh, about taking over Jane's job, you mean? Yes, couldn't I? <laughs> Probably be quite a big help if you really want to do the job. I do, Phil, honestly. Well, if you told your father, what does he say about it? He didn't seem particularly worried. So here I am reporting for duty. <laughs> what, dressed like that? What's wrong? Nothing, you look marvellous. The slacks are smashing and the sweater's just a job, but they're far too good for working clothes. To this day, my parents listen to the arches. That is... 
that's the Sunday morning routine is you come downstairs, you stick the arches on, and on it goes. As just people have lovely little rural life with some little mini dramas within there. I can actually recommend, as a if people are looking for some comedy around the arches, Adam and Joe, when they were on Six Music, Joe Cornish, as a bit of a thought experiment, edited down an episode of The Archers to just the inhales and exhales. It's an absolutely brilliant bit of radio. Thanks. Anyway. Tom. And, uh, oh. oh, hey. Oh. I mean, the archers still go into this day. The archers' omnibus, a staple of Sunday listening on Radio 4. It and radio were huge. They were booming through the 1950s to the point where the launch of independent television, ITV, in 1955 was overshadowed by a death of a member of the titular family in The Archers. The death of that character got more headline space than the launch of commercial television. Do you want to take a guess? Because, you know, you do great at guessing things, Luke, on this podcast. Famously so. How many episodes, roughly, do you think there have been of The Archers? Right. I mean, if it was, you know, I mean, it's, it's, I think it is still five. It's five days a week now, at the very least. Let me get my calculator here, just so I can get a, a half-decent estimates. So it's 52 weeks a year. So five times 52 would be 260 episodes a year. I reckon it has been five days a week for 30 years at this point. 7,800. It's going to be way more than that, given how many years it's been going. So I'm going to do 7,800 times times that by five. 39,000 is what I'm going with. I genuinely didn't think you'd go over. You've gone over by about 20,000. Ah, damn it. (laughs) 19,000 episodes, though. That's insane it is the longest running drama by episodes not by runtime because a lot of those episodes are quite short it's why you can have the archer's omnibus on a sunday and it not eat up your entire existence so you found radio dramas yourself when you were younger radio 4 play for the day stuff like that going to the library borrowing books on tape some mixture of audio dramas i guess in there some of the bbc classics maybe a lot of that just william was my boy in the road Robert met Jameson Jameson. Burglars, said Jameson Jameson. All my money's been taken and my camera. The wretches. I'm going to scour the country for them. Various other members of the Bolshevist society appeared, filled with wrath and lamenting vanished treasures. Ronald Bell had had a disturbing thought. Do you think, he said, that someone in the government found out about us being Bolshevists and is trying to intimidate us? James and Jameson thought this very likely, and they discussed it excitedly in the middle of the road. A fond summer would be spent with just William on tape. I think I kind of leapt up the tree a bit, and part of that may just be because we have a bit of an age difference between us. Another part of it is because my dad was kind of the one that brought me to full-cast audio performances, because it wasn't drama. Obviously, I heard The Archers. It was on every day. It was on Sunday as well. But he introduced me to things like Hancock's Half Hour. Where are we going to go after the pictures on a Saturday night? You may well ask. Perfect way to end an evening at the pictures, that was. Standing around the pie store with the other lads, dipping our meat pies in the chopped sauce on the edge of the plate. 
and discussing whether we fancied the bird in the second feature. <laughs> yeah. The Goon Show, The Navy Lark, products of the BBC Home Service, now known as Radio 4. That introduction, plus access to the local library, it just led me down the rabbit hole because then it led to, ooh, there's this big shiny box that says Lord of the Rings. And there we have it, the BBC adaptation of Lord of the Rings from 1981 in all of its glory. Apparently the second time it was actually made, there was another production in 1955 that, for reasons much like a lot of early Doctor Who, doesn't exist. There's a lot of car rides up towards Liverpool that have been sort of wild away by Lord of the Rings on tape. Or, you know, like those massive radio play dramas that are just like cassette finishes, you flip it over, take that cassette out, you put the next cassette in. Easy way to while away the hours. I, I had a lot of long car journeys in my childhood, and I think that also played into it. I had a lot of long bus journeys. My bus to school, right up until the end of my A-levels, it was a solid hour each way every day. Got through a lot of audiobooks, got a lot of plays, a lot of things I re-listened to. Most importantly, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. What an extraordinary book. Help me write the new edition. No, I want to go back to Earth again, I'm afraid. Or its nearest equivalent. You're turning down a hundred billion new worlds to explore. Did you get much useful material on Earth? I was able to extend the entry, yes. Oh, let's see what it says in this edition, then. Okay. Let's see. E-Earth. Tap out the code. There's the page. It doesn't seem to have an entry. Yes, it does. See, right there at the bottom of the screen, just under Eccentrica Golumbits, the triple-breasted whore of Eroticon 6. What, there? Oh, yes. Harmless. Harmless? Is that all it's got to say? One word? Harmless? What the hell's that supposed to mean? Well, there are a hundred billion stars in the galaxy and a limited amount of space in the book. And no one knew much about the Earth, of course. Well, I hope you've managed to rectify that a little. Yes, I transmitted a new entry off to the editor. He had to trim it a bit, but it's still an improvement. What does it say now? Mostly harmless. Mostly harmless? Well, that's the way it is. We're on a different scale now. If The Goon Show and Hancock's Half Hour were that first kind of puff of a wacky cigarette, Hitchhikers was a full-on dose of LSD straight into the eyeball. That sent me off on a raft of just listening to Journey into Space, an old radio play that was rediscovered, getting any tapes I could of sci-fi or horror from the local library as Radio 5 launched. And at first, it wasn't just news and sports. It was actual programming, including a lot of like kind of youth and niche programming. You had the output of ZBS from America, Ruby the Galactic Gumshoe, which was very much an American spiritual counterpart to Hitchhikers in the way it approached the genre of science fiction. And from all that time, from all that time in the late 80s into the 90s when I was growing up with all this, names started to form in my head, names that I would hear announced at the beginning or the end of a show, and I would just know this is a sign of quality. Names such as Jeffrey Perkins, a man who produced Hitchhikers, also partially credited with inventing the game Mornington Crescent. Uh, Peter Eaton, Goon Show, Charles Chilton, who created the aforementioned Journey into Space. And one name that started to appear with increasing regularity, particularly in more modern adaptations of superhero tales, was one Dirk Max, without whom Independence Day UK would not exist, and therefore this episode of this podcast would not exist. Thankfully, we don't need to tell his story because he's more than capable of telling it himself.
I am joined today by a man who has literally been putting words in my ears for over 30 years. He is a writer, a producer, a director, a man with fabulous hair and also a drummer. It is, I guess, writer, producer and director of Independence Day UK, Dirk Mags. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for giving us your time. My absolute pleasure, Ash. It's lovely to be here and it's lovely to talk about Independence Day UK, which is seems a thousand years ago now. To rewind a bit, Independence Day UK was far from your first rodeo when it came to the idea of an audio movie, a concept that you pretty much pioneered. Previously, you'd already done a number of Batman audio plays for the BBC, Nightfall, The Lazarus Syndrome, also Superman. The Amazing Spider-Man also came out, I think, before this point, and the first Judge Dredd, The Day the Law Died. Yes. How did you get to this point in 1996? I mean, essentially, what is a Dirk Mags? Well, basically, I was raised on radio because my dad would always listen to the comedy programs on a Sunday lunchtime in the 60s. So we would have Round the Horn playing or Ken Dodd on a Saturday or the Clitheroe Kid, all of these classic radio comedy programs, some of which are forgotten. And also I found The Goon Show, which became an instant favourite for me. What's going on down here? Nothing, sir, nothing at all. That's funny, good pipe. I thought I heard the sound of a man photographing the photograph of the secret plans, recording them on tape, swallowing them, raising his right leg and <laughs> fleeing the country. Quite impossible. We were whispering. So. I'm sorry. I must have been mistaken. Answer that phone. What phone? That one. So I was already kind of hooked on listening to things for pleasure. And uh, because we didn't have video recorders or DVD or Blu-rays or streaming in those days, you know, you, you took your entertainment where you could find it. So I became a devotee of audio. I wanted to be an actor, so I trained as a drama teacher. So that meant that I was both doing acting and learning to teach so that if I couldn't get acting jobs, I'd have a backup job. Turned out I was a terrible teacher and an even worse actor. But luckily, someone else in my year at college discovered that BBC did training courses for studio, what they call studio managers. And the one thing I had already started doing was playing with tape recorders, which we had in those days, just recording silly noises and having fun with my mates. You know, I was also playing in bands, so it was also useful to record the noises we made. Can't call it music, but it was certainly was noises. And this person who was in the year above me sort of disappeared off and we carried on to college and uh, she came back. We, the, the band I was in at college was playing the summer ball and um, she walked in and uh, we were chatting and I said, what are you doing now? She said, I'm working for the BBC as a trainee studio manager. My ears pricked up because I didn't want to be a teacher. I just, you know, wasn't very good at crowd control really and stuff like that. So I applied and somehow I got the job and I still don't know how. So I joined the BBC as a trainee studio manager in July 1978, 19th of July. It was... Um, scary as hell and you had to do six months training and if you failed the test you were out on your ear and I really didn't have all the confidence in the world and I certainly my physics is rubbish so the one thing I could bring to it was a sort of you know an ability to operate the equipment luckily I got through the exam and I got in to become a studio manager very quickly I wanted to move into television went to television for 18 months worked as a network director stitching together BBC One and BBC Two and making trailers quite enjoyed that but found Television Centre a bit dull, went back to radio, played in bands, met my wife, got married, decided I had to go for something. So I applied for a job because I could make trailers in Radio 2, making trailers. And in Radio 2, while I was making trailers, when we needed to do a campaign for a sort of neighbourhood watch thing in 1987, 
I had the idea of using classic detectives like Miss Marple and Hercule Poirot and Sherlock Holmes and, oh, Batman. Let's do a 30-second trail for this campaign called Crime Check with Batman. Well, if I'm going to use Batman, I've got to ask permission because BBC producer can't just use stuff that's someone else's intellectual property. So I rang DC Comics in New York and DC Comics answered. And a lovely lady called Phyllis Hume, who would later introduce me to Neil Gaiman, said, oh, well, you could make one. And then one of our people is coming through London next week on the way to the Frankfurt Book Fair. She could drop in and hear it. And if she likes it, you're okay. So we made this very silly thing, Steve Madden and I, and in came a lady called Chantal Dolnis, who was heading for Frankfurt, listened to it and said, that's really good. It's silly fun. And I thought, crikey, okay. As she was leaving, she said, and if you want any more um, DC ideas, it's Superman's 50th birthday next week. So I took all that knowledge and ran with it because I was applying for a job at BBC Radio Light Entertainment, the source of many of the shows I'd loved as a kid, The Goons and Hancock and all of that. And uh, got the job, made the Superman documentary, went down very well, got the cover of the Radio Times. And um, to cut a very long story short, I was making radio programs. And as I was making the Superman, someone else was actually directing it. And I'd put in all lo lots of excerpts from the comics written up like they were little movie clips. And the idea was to make it sound like there was Superman movies you'd never seen. And that was where the idea of making stuff sound really layered and very movie-like came in. And this was around the time now where Terminator 2 came out and movies like that, you know, where sound design, which had really kind of really taken off with the, the Star Wars movies and Ben Burtt's work, sort of 13, 14 years later, this is really paying off now. And you've got this amazing sound design going on. And I thought we should be doing it in radio. A dark night arrives to help the Man of Steel. How exciting. If there's an antidote to whatever you've slipped, Superman Luther, he'll find it. Forget it. There's no antidote. You son of a... The witness will identify himself. I am known as the Batman. Your real name, Batman. Ah, Luther. The Superman's been far too soft on you. If you only lived in Gotham City... By now, you'd have learned respect. Respect? A masked vigilante? The mind boggles. That so for the first three or four years of the 90s, no, beg your pardon, five or six, I was making these basically movies in sound as far as I was concerned because I found, for me, if I thought of a visual image and then tried to find the sounds that fitted it and put them together properly and mix them with music, a listener would have pretty much the same images in their head. Their version wouldn't be too far away from what I'd done. So it's a kind of thought transference thing. So we made this uh, Superman docudrama. Then we did a Batman docudrama for his 50th birthday. Then we did The Adventures of Superman, two six times 15 minute serials for BBC Radio 4, believe it or not. Stayed old Radio 4 took Superman. Then there was a brief interregnum where Douglas Adams had heard the work I was doing, rang my boss and said, do you think Dirk would be interested in bringing The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy back to radio? And I was round his house before he'd put the phone down <laughs> saying, yes, I'd love to, Douglas. And we spent about three or four months planning the third series of Hitchhikers and having various adventures along the way where um, a writer was commissioned to write a pilot script, which Douglas was very unhappy with, and I volunteered to do it myself. And just as things seemed to be starting to happen, all the original cast were up for it. Peter Jones, Simon Jones, everybody looking forward to it. Um, the deal fell through. Couldn't happen. So I was in a bit of a pickle. 
I went off to work for BBC Worldwide for a bit, helping them sell cassettes of stuff. And while I was there, I I just thought I've been parked here. I've got to do something. So luckily, the first good thing that happened was a producer called Ian Gardhouse, senior producer, uh, recruited me to take over Ned Sherin's Loose Ends for six months. So I worked with Ned for six months, which was great because it got me back into production. And secondly, the new, as it was then, Radio 5 had just been launched and were looking for program ideas. And there was, at that time, the Death of Superman storyline running in the comics. So I pitched it to them and to DC, and to my amazement, both of them said yes. And suddenly we were making what was called in this country Superman Doomsday and Beyond, and in America, Superman Lives. In Dolby Prologic surround for BBC Radio 5, nobody at the BBC wanted to do it in surround, so I just did it anyway, I should add. Doomsday, your rampage ends here. Metropolis is where I draw the line. Doggy. can't believe this thing isn't feeling as bad as I am. Gotta try to bring it down, even if it kills me. It was the first production ever done in surround for the BBC. They didn't know it at the time because it was completely stereo compatible and I did nothing that would ruin the mono effect for listeners in distant islands. That really was the turning point. And the other turning point was very germane to Independence Day UK. Matthew Bannister took over BBC Radio 1 for Johnny Beerling as controller and pretty much immediately sacked all the old DJs, the Simon Bateses and the Dave Lee Travises, get a new bunch in with Chris Sevens and what have you, and very much frowned upon, very unpopular move. Well, certainly with the guys he sacked. But the other thing was uh, he decided to have a daily drama. And I was one of the uh, Radio Light Entertainment producers that was summoned to Jonathan's office, our boss's office, in 16 Langham Street, as it was then, for Matthew Bannister to come in and ask us, did anyone have an idea for a drama? I was a bit nonplussed because I thought, well, this is BBC Radio 1. We're the BBC. There's this sort of imperative, this social conscience imperative do stuff that's got a certain kind of level of responsibility. So I expect this all to be about unemployed people or the disadvantaged, or I'm sounding cynical about unemployed people and disadvantaged. I'm not in the least, but at that time, that's the sort of thing, very worthy material. And I'm hopelessly lightweight. I care deeply about these matters, but there are much better social commentators than I am. I'm better at the escapist nonsense, which you go to when you've had enough of the world. So I just sat at the back and up came the the sort of socially worthy ideas I was expecting to hear. And I was in pretty exhausted company. Armando Iannucci was there, Lisa Evans was there, Chris Neal, Diane Messias, uh, David Tyler. I mean, it was a, you know, it was the who's who of great radio production. And finally ended up with me at the back of the room. And Matthew said, what about you, Dirk? You've been quiet. Have you got anything? And I said, um, how about Batman? And he said, yes, just like that. Great, fantastic Batman. And then he said, can you do it in three minutes a day? My smile froze and I said, yeah, sure. (laughs) And walked out of Jonathan's office thinking, oh my God, how the hell do you do that? 
a few days went by. This had got out to the press. Radio One were going to do three minutes a day drama. And I'm pretty sure it was Alan Plater wrote something about, you know, it's impossible to tell a story in three minutes a day, absolutely impossible. So I'm like thinking, oh my God, even the head of the writer's guild doesn't think it's possible. I've, what have I taken on? But then I opened one of the comics because there was a storyline called Nightfall going on about Batman having broken his back and being out of action and somebody else had to step in and he has to recover and then you've got to face his greatest enemy. All those wonderful tropes. It was the simplest thing, but I looked at a single page of the comic and I thought, oh, that's an episode. Because the top of the page, it starts with picking up the story where it left off, develops a story in panel two, middle panels have the big story beat for this page, and the closing panels are the bits that then make you want to turn to see what happens on the next page. And that's my three minutes. That's how I structure it. Catch up with the story, big story beat, then read on here. And so we did it, and it worked really, really well. Uh, much better than I dared hope. You're losing your touch, Riddler. It usually takes me a good half hour to solve your stupid riddle. Ah! Uh, Batman, you were almost too late. <laughs> On the last bong, at the stroke of midnight, this whole building will go boom. Oh! You're using something, aren't you? Aha! Regular dynamite. You can't beat it. And that began a run of programs for Radio 1. We did Spidey next. Marvel had heard we did Batman and a very enterprising guy called Tim Quinn, who was in Marvel's London office at that time. You know, if you can do Batman, you can flipping well do Spidey. And he came in and saw me and he said, oh, you know, and I've spoken to Brian May and Brian May would like to write the music for Spider-Man. So I thought, great, you know. So I went down to meet Brian and it was great. And it was like meeting an old friend. We just immediately clicked. So that was lovely. So we made Spidey. And then we we repurposed some of the Supermans we did for Radio 4. And then we did Judge Dredd, The Day the Lord Died, which was my personal favorite of the two dreads we did. Apocalypse War, I thought, was a bit grim because it fell on the anniversary of Hiroshima, which I wasn't sure about that one. But Day the Lord Died with Judge Cal and Judge Fish and all that nonsense. And in the studio, the fun we had really should have been made illegal. We shouldn't have been having that much fun doing the day job, but we did. So this had all worked really well. And we were making these audio movies, you know, with music and sound effects, very layered, very intense. And we were working in Dolby Pro Logic so that if you had a system, it felt like the sound was all around you. You know, it was as good as I could get it. And a guy called Steve from 20th Century Fox in London rang the office and um, Maureen, my lovely PA, said it's 20th Century Fox view. And I thought, aha, the call at last. And we'll rejoin Dirk a little bit later. See Cliffhanger Luke? Cliffhanger. So there's our background on our writer, director, producer of this play. Independence Day UK itself, we've talked about quite a bit, but just to give a little bit of an idea of timeline and where we are. Dirk is receiving this phone call in 1995. Production began on Independence Day in July 1995. Uh, they started filming in New York City, filming around Manhattan, then moving on to Washington, D.C., then Arizona, New Mexico. During filming, they had a little bit of an issue because technically Warner Brothers owned the rights to the name Independence Day. We had a proper Ghostbusters situation going on. And originally, like the title they were working under was Doomsday, even though like Dean Devlin and Ronald Emmerich, they really wanted Independence Day. Just before they filmed the speech of Bill Pullman standing up and giving his big, oorah, we're going to kill the alien speech, 
they added the line, today we celebrate our Independence Day, because they were like, if we put it in there and it's in the rushes, they're going to see it and go, well, we've got to get it now. That's so good. And they were right. It worked. They did come to an arrangement with Warner Brothers and thus Independence Day was born. It's quite key to the movie, really, in a way. Like, it's so much of it is built around July 4th. Like, it's literally a countdown to July 4th. And, you know, it's when the movie is going to be coming out. It's quite crucial, really, that the film is also called Independence Day. Even if they do also just call it ID4. I don't know. They could have called it Doomsday ID4? Would... Nah, that would, that would have been awful. Because then, what would we... We'd have had Doomsday ID4 UK. Yeah, I mean, the only alternative name you could cover, if you didn't want to do Doomsday, is just call it July 4th. Because people know what you mean by that. I find it therefore kind of amusing that it's July 4th. It was the big summer blockbuster from America. When does the UK get it? August 9th. Well, of course, we get it much later. Independence Day means nothing to us. Although, fair credit, Independence Day UK goes out on August 4th. I think it's, and actually, I like that we have it tied in with the release of that. It, it didn't come out with the US release. It was tied into our UK release of the movie, albeit a week later. I, I think that's actually really nice synergy. The great thing is, is it airs the week before the movie, so it builds hype. It says a lot about what happens in the movie, but nothing you wouldn't have gained from the trailers. It's actually a perfect kind of companion piece, a prequel, if you will, because it doesn't spoil any major beats that weren't already in the trailer like we'd all seen the white house blow up by that point everyone had seen that scene if they'd seen anything of the film i mean that was, all the marketing was built around that that was like the first teaser trailer it's the roland emmerich thing of just like we show you the big thing you know in our first teaser trailer to make you then want to see the next trailer and then go and see the movie uh you know that comes after it yeah you're right like the thing that independence day uk does so well is particularly in that scene where the alien spacecraft fires they describe to you no have you seen the film you know exactly what that looks like but if you have not seen the movie you're just going to get this idea of visual of like what that looks like and what the energy beam that shoots out and blows stuff up looks like from underneath and you do get those underneath shots when the film comes out but back in 1995 production rolls on they finish messing around on the bonneville salt flats and return to california to film in various places around la including hughes aircraft where sets for like the cable company that david works for and area 51 interiors were were built inside a former aircraft plant so we've got that period of time when they were at hughes aircraft back in the uk just a few minutes ago we left dirk being told there was a call for 20th Century Fox. Specifically, this was a call from one Steve Manners, who is still a name you can actually find out there on the internet today. He is still, in addition to Fox, he's also worked for Universal. So in some ways, he's kind of batted for two different sides of that particular fence or war. Anyway, was this the mythical call that Dirk had been waiting for? Steve said, um, we're doing a movie with uh, Dean Devlin and Roland Emmerich called Independence Day. And neither of those names meant anything to me at that point. This is 1995. And he said, we're wondering if it's possible. You've been doing all these sort of superhero things and comic book things. Do you think there's a possible a radio version, some kind of version of a radio? And I said, well, look, I don't really want to do something that's already a film. The whole point of what we do is it doesn't exist as a film. So we make an audio movie and it's like a film in your head. And he said, well, you know, do you want to come in and talk about it? Well, I couldn't not go in, could I? Because it's like you can talk to 20th Century Fox, which is, you know, in those days was a big deal. And Fox didn't quite have the name associations it does now with certain newspaper proprietors. It mm. was, you know, it was a big movie company. Went to see this guy, Steve, very nice guy. Seriously wanted to do it. 
I pitched it to Matthew Bannister. He said, yeah, it wouldn't be a series. He said, I'd do it as a one-off. And I thought, well, if you do it as a one-off, well, that's great. And I'd already had this idea in my head that it might be a good, maybe to make it as a sort of homage to Orson Welles' War of the Worlds, the famous 1938 recording where they sort of scared America, the East Coast of America, mm-hmm. into thinking it was being invaded. I said, well, if we do it, I do have to fly to the USA to meet the producers. And um, he said, all right, I'll stand you the ticket. So probably about June 1995, flew out to California to meet Dean Devlin. And it was in the hangar where um, Howard Hughes built the Spruce Goose. And basically, Dean, he looked about 12 years old. It was just so weird. I, I kind of, not what I was expecting at all. And he was charming and very, you know, amusing and sat me down and what do you want to do with it? And I said, I'd like to do the British version of the story. And he said, that's fine. You just can't give away the ending or have the British win. I said, okay. Thinking, okay. And then I said, but I'd like to do this homage to Wells. And he liked that idea very much. So that was a good meeting. And I did a, you know, took a couple, a few other meetings while I was out there, which was fun. And then flew home, put it together. And I knew what I needed was in the Wells book of, of War of the Wars, because I have to go to the H.G. Wells story to bring the thread forward through the Orson Wells story into the Nobody Wells version we were doing. I knew I needed a professor figure who's kind of like the teller of the tale, the, the initial teller of the tale, who is Orson Wells in the radio version. I needed an authority figure. And the idea was I talked to Matthew about why don't we do it as if it's genuinely a Radio 1 broadcast and we could call it like UFO Watch. And if we have one of your guys up in like um, an RAF AWACS aircraft with some sort of expert, then it would be great because we could pretend we're live on the air from this aircraft. And oh, yeah, like that very much. So I thought, well, a professor figure who'd be good. And I thought, well, the obvious person to have is Patrick Moore because Patrick is, you know, much loved astronomer, you know, much popularized astronomy, a born performer as himself. That's what he was performing all his life. I'd also worked with him on some quiz shows. Part of my job at the BBC um, Light Entertainment was to do the occasional quiz shows. So in between doing comedy stuff like the news headlines or Flywheel, Shies from Flywheel, or a Superman or a Batman, I produced Pop Choice or some of these days with Cliff Mitchell Moore. So I'd met Patrick on that and I knew he was a sport. So I rang him at Celsi at Farthings, his house, introduced myself. Oh, yes, Jack. Yes, yes, I remember you. I remember you. And I said, um, I'm doing this sort of tribute to Orson Welles' War of the World, and I'd love you to be the token. I explained the, 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 con- the conceit of it to him, and he, he said, oh, yes, very good, very good. And I said, and because you were in the RAF, it would be really fun, because this really is going to be about the RAF fighting aliens, you know, if we draw on that as a reason you're there. Oh, yes, I, yes, yeah, very good. And then, you know, he would tell me stories about, you know, how he was in bombers. He was working in intelligence with Michael Benteen, actually, wow. ex of the early goon show. Yeah. And in fact, Patrick ha- had a crash landing at one point in a bomber and injured his back. And that led to some problems in later life for him. But he was a charming man and he was aboard. And then I needed a Radio One character. And Nicky Campbell was the obvious choice because Nicky was known from television and had a certain ability to be friendly, but also informed and intelligent at the same time. So the conceit was that we joined them up in an AWACS aircraft circling England, listening to the search for extraterrestrial intelligence signals coming from, you know, wherever it is. And saying, well, you know, this is definitely something, folks, and all of this. 
we had our expert, which was Patrick. We had our presenter who the listeners would know as a Radio 1 guy, which was Nikki. And my plan was to conform to the Wells's. The first third is as if real. And then the last two thirds is where you go into the fictional story. Uh, that was the bit where Wells didn't quite clearly enough make it uh, fictional and people got confused. And although I quite like the idea of sparking a panic, I thought probably it was better not to. But anyway, as it happened, people did start ringing duty office, apparently. I am actually, the one thing that shocked me, and I think it shocked me at the time and it still shocks me now, is that the BBC did go for this because yeah. we were only three, four years removed from Ghostwatch. Yes. And that was borderline satanic panic 2.0 in the UK. Ghostwatch <laughs> was locked in the BBC's white vault for more mm. than a decade. That's the scene in uh, Fox Hill Drive in Northolt. Our outside broadcast units are there. That's the house where it might all happen tonight, or it might not, we shall see. We're going to investigate one of the most baffling and fascinating areas of human experience, the supernatural. Tonight, television is going ghost hunting in an unprecedented scientific experiment we hope to show you, for the first time, irrefutable proof that ghosts really do exist. I don't remember there was a conversation per se involving Ghostwatch, but I do remember saying to Matthew that it's very important we have music. So I guess the fact that it was scored by David Arnold and Mark Russell, you know, using David's theme music, and then Mark would write some incidental stuff because Mark wrote the music for Nightfall. Maybe they felt that was enough of a giveaway that this wasn't real because you can't score something live. And there was a moment where you went through the mirror. But yeah, you, you said did. the first part is very much presented as a mockumentary. And yes. then there is that moment, which is a separate question, but I'll get to that later. But you have that moment where everything flips 180. It does. Absolutely. So we had our opening sorted out and um, I don't get to write my own original stuff very often. And this had to be original, apart from the fact I was using the device of the aliens and it was influenced by Wells. It was great for me because I was actually able to write something and structure it myself in many ways. So I had them up in this AWACS aircraft sort of listening out for people and I cast Colin Baker. I wanted a, you know, a solid science fiction stalwart. So Colin, who'd been a Doctor Who, was going to play the um, group captain who was aboard the AWACS, explained, the RAF guy, you know, explaining stuff. And Colin's so good because he's got authority. So, you know, he's kind of, yes, well, we call this, we call it that. I went to the Ministry of Defence, which was in itself an event, because you go through this sort of glass entryway where if they don't like the look of you, you can shut you in and not gas you, but it's really kind of like, whoa! Went up to an office where there was an RAF liaison officer who was charming. We had a chat, what do you want to do? All oh, right, okay, you want to do this, you want to do that. I've got this script I've written. I would love you to look at it and tell me if it's in any way inaccurate, given we, at this moment, we don't have any alien contact. He said, he said that we know of. That was funny. <laughs> and he was with a wink. And I said, but, you know, if you could check the script, but also what I'd love to do is go and record some of the aircraft because we're doing this in Dolby Pro Logic and it would be fabulous to do. And he said, fine, fine, fine. And he had a look and uh, he said, leave the script with me. And would you like an RAF key ring? You know, that sort of thing. <laughs> a couple of days later, got a nice letter from him, I think, probably somewhere here, saying, you know, really enjoyed the script, lots of fun. I'm going to put you in touch with our liaison officer, RF uh, Waddington and Collingsby, to um, get the recordings you want. A couple of things. Your code name for the AWACS aircraft is actually our code name for the AWACS aircraft. You'll have to change it, which I thought was great because <laughs> I just dreamt that one up. So, oh, that was a good guess. And a couple of other little notes, like you wouldn't address a group captain as so-and-so and all of that stuff. So. 
So the RF have passed the script. We've sorted out any potential clashes where I'm giving away official secrets. Everything is really sorted. So the first order of business was to go and record the aircraft. And there were two places we could record aircraft. We were, could record the fighters at RAF Waddington, where the RAF tornadoes were based. And I had an intro to the commander of the guys of, of that squadron. Lovely guy. Lovely guy. And, you know, you go inside the perimeter and it's like Battle of Britain, except with jets. You know, all the guys walking around in there in all the fire gear and so on and so forth. And... um Met them in the mess. They were going out on an operational sortie. They just finished exercises with the Americans up and down the North Sea, where they were very proud of themselves because in the um, training exercises, they'd managed to shoot down all the Americans. They were very pleased about that. I needed to record the aircraft taking off, flying overhead, and also some cockpit noises. And it was just like the biggest boy's own day out ever. And it only got better and better. I was there with Darren Bowen, who was one of the engineers from the sound house, and Darren brought the recording gear. I can record it all myself, but if I'm busy worrying about levels, I'm not working out what we're going to do next. I can't think ahead if I'm doing all the jobs. First of all, the lad sat us in the cockpit of a tornado, and so I was able to record switches and what have you and so on. And it was just fascinating anyway, because it was like, had to empty your pockets before you went in, because, of course, if anything falls out, when the plane turns upside down, it drops on the canopy over your head, like the gag in Hot Shots. And the other thing was, uh, I was wearing my usual uh, cowboy boots, and it was, um, Dirk, you might just want to move your heel. It's actually on the ejector seat <laughs> trigger. Ah, yeah, it might do that. But it was lots of fun. So, for example, the fact that for long flights, the navigator in the back seat had, I said, what's this? This looks very familiar. He said, yeah, it's a cassette player. So they play cassettes of music while they're flying about. You know, if they're not fighting somebody, you might as well have a bit of playing in the background. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that was pretty cool. Got some clicks, got some words. They played some of the, uh, you know, the warning sounds that it can make. Too loud, too loud, all that sort of stuff. And then they, they were going to take off. So recorded the aircraft in its hardened aircraft shelter being warmed up and then being rolled out, so on and so forth. Um, you don't want to stand there. Those guns are actually armed, things like that. Kind of like pretty lethal toys, these things. And then we recorded them taking off, recorded them flying overhead. It was really such a day out. We were right on the flight line, somewhere probably quite unsafe. Chatted to the guys. You know, I said, look, we're supposed to be doing this. We're supposed to be doing that. And I said, um, what I need is for the first squadron to encounter this thing, to not know it's got a force field. And they say, oh, well, you want Jaguars then? You know, they don't have a radar. They hmm. didn't have radar that would detect something in that way. So I thought, oh, great plot point. So the Jaguars fly right into the force field, not knowing it's there, whereas the, the tornadoes have got the radar that'll pick it up. So that was immediately a great plot point. You immediately build up the jeopardy. So, you know, all the time, everything these guys are saying is kind of really kind of resonating. So that was great because I was getting inside information and we were recording great stuff. Then I wanted to record an AWACS. So we drove up the road to Coningsby. This was sort of after lunch. And already Darren and I had stayed overnight at the Dan Busters Hotel. Oh, lovely. Uh, what, the Petworth Hotel or whatever it's called. So we were just like steeped in East Anglian RAF lore at this point. And of course, Coningsby is great because that's where the AWACSs fly out of. But it's also where the Battle of Britain Memorial flights are. So 
there were a couple of things happened. First of all, there was a bunch of, I think it was the Swiss Air Force or the Danish Air Force or somebody was there. It wasn't the French Air Force, but they were flying Dassault Mirage aircraft. They were just taking off as we arrived. So we grabbed the recording gear and put it on. And these guys were taking off on full afterburner. And we were probably 500 feet away. It was like being punched in the stomach when these things went on. And it was just such an amazing sound effect. I used it for the tornadoes and the thing because it was just such a cool noise, full afterburner, because you don't normally hear that on the ground. They usually kick that in in the air. Mm. So that was the first thing. And then we got the AWACS coming in. And I suddenly realized that the AWACS actually just sounded like any commercial airliner, because that's basically what it was. BBC sound effects, CD22, you know, Boeing 747 or whatever. Then the person who's showing us around said, um, would you like to look at the Battle of Britain Memorial flight aircraft? It's like, are you kidding? <laughs> and so we went in the hangar and there's the Lancaster. So we go and look in the Lancaster. It's like so cool. Hurricanes, Spitfires. And we're walking around going, you know, this is every 10-year-old kid's dream from when I was a 10-year-old kid. Got introduced to the duty sergeant. And I just thought, you know what? If I don't ask now, I never will. I said, um, is it possible to sit in a Spitfire? And he just sat and looked, you know, <laughs> it's like, and he looked at me. I immediately knew exactly what kind of bloke he was. He was like the old BBC engineers who were actually going to give you a hard time, but then let you have what you wanted. And he said, yeah, but empty your pockets first and you'll be too tall for it. So we went and sat in a spit and it was just, you know, obviously heaven for a, you know, a kid who was brought up on Battle of Britain and all of that. I used to go to a lot of air tattoo shows as a kid with my dad and I was just always in awe of them. And I'm just listening to you say this and I'm thinking, there must have been this thing in your mind of going, I'm getting paid to do this. Yeah. <laughs> this oh, is so my job. Totally. <laughs> oh, so totally. And I looked such a sight because my hair, I mean, my hair is a thing, but you know, I was like all dressed in black with cowboy boots and my hair was dyed black at the time. It was my gothic phase or whatever. And here I am sitting in a bloody spit. It was the just brilliant bucket list ticked off, but we had what we needed. That was sorted. I'd done the RF thing. The script had been checked. We were good to go into studio. I'd booked Patrick as the expert. I'd booked Nikki Campbell as the DJ presenter because it needed to sound as if we were making a real program from an aircraft over Britain listening to alien signals. What we needed now was the rest of the cast. And what I'd written was something where there were um, fighter pilots involved. And obviously it was really important for me as well to fair representation and so on. And it just so happened that the Christmas before I'd taken the kids to see Peter Pan with Toya Wilcox in. And I, I knew Toya through a sort of mutual acquaintance at that time. And I met her and she was just really fun and a very kind of up sort of person and also very competent and very British. And I knew she could act. And I thought you'd be great to play the part of Becky, who's quite a senior pilot, very experienced. So I like the idea of having a female pilot because it was otherwise it was all hairy chested men. I also called on Simon Treves because he was another old acting mate. He played Metallo in our Supermans and way beyond the call of duty, nearly wrecked his voice trying to be a cyborg with a heart of kryptonite. And he deserved a part where he could just enjoy himself. So he became um, uh, uh, John Reginald. And the reason he got that weird name is because that's what they named the British pilots 
in Independence Day, the movie, this character does actually appear near the end in one of those brief kind of roundup bits. What the hell's he saying? It seems they're getting a signal. Old Morse code. It's from the Americans. They want to organise a counter-offensive. It's about bloody time. What do they plan to do? I re-watched the movie as we were covering its kind of pe- period at number one, and it is literally like, those bally Americans have got an idea. Yes, yeah, like my pipe, was you? Um, <laughs> yes. It was like it. Biggles yes. suddenly entered the 1990s. It was like, seriously, guys, come on. Yeah, so we, that was another reason for doing it. I wanted us to be us and not, you know, kind of terrible caricatures, which is another good reason for having Toya. And we had Colin Baker as the the, the group captain aboard the uh, aboard the AWACS with uh, with Nikki and with Patrick. So we had this sort of sense of a, of a team. And the idea was that they would talk to the RAF pilots that would feature in the second half of the show. In the first half of the show, we established they're in the air. We established they're looking, inspecting this thing. And Mark Courtney, uh, you know, lovely uh, young actor was playing, you know, one of the observers, you know, radar guys on the AWACS and so on. And so we, we, we recorded the first 20 minutes. It was really quite fun. And that became the sort of, as it were, live portion of the event. And it was all done in sort of one session. And it was pretty straightforward, really. What I wanted to do was to keep that sense of reality. Mark Goodyear appeared as oh, we introduced the show. Yeah, that's right. That was the first 20 minutes. It was as if, you know, good Lord, there's a, a UFO over London. Uh, it suddenly appeared. <laughs> London's been destroyed. All in 20 minutes. We, we started with nothing. See, London's been destroyed by a flipping great UFO, which was lots of fun. And then we got to the break. And what we did was when things got serious, uh, they apparently cut back from the, the aircraft to a reporter on the roof of Broadcasting House, which was Toby Longworth. There's a specific bit in the Wells War of the Worlds where the reporter is telling you what he's seen and then suddenly gets cut off by death. This was how I wanted Toby to be. And I needed Toby, even though he was sort of on the roof and therefore presumably static, I needed him to sound like he was out of breath and panicked. So I made him run around the Soundhouse car park while we ran around with a portable recorder and recorded him giving this they're coming over here that's it the whole of regent street is a desert of fire and all of this stuff and then he ran into the sound house and we hear him as it were go back into broadcasting house the building i think get out of my way get out of my way and at that point suddenly he's gone a lot can happen in three years like a chatbot maybe your new best friend but what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. 
If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. During dessert, always blow your nose. Radio 1. So, Luke, it's Sunday the 4th of August 1996. We've all just finished listening to Mark Goodyear presenting the UK Top 40 charts. Wannabe by the Spice Girls is enjoying its fourth week at number one, but being chased by Robbie Williams' freedom alongside new entries from Suede and Dodgy. But it's 7pm and it's time for something a bit different, as we're now going to be spending the hour between Goodyear and Peel doing a spot of UFO watching. I mean, it doesn't boggle my mind that much because it's a big 20th Century Fox production. You know, this this is an actual 20th Century Fox thing to promote what is probably going to be the biggest movie of the year in terms of, you know, the the summer blockbuster one, even though we are sort of like actually now almost out of summer blockbuster season as we head into August. This is such a Radio 4 thing. And yet here it is on... BBC Radio 1. I suppose if this wasn't Independence Day, it would have been on Radio 4. But I love that it is Radio 1 and, you know, it's got all that 97 to 99 FM. That is what I think of when I think of Radio 1. Hearing all of the indents and stuff, I, 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 there's a, a lot of nostalgia that is tied into this era of Radio 1. A lot of this being on Radio 1 is to a degree down to Dirk himself. As he said earlier, his whole path that led him to this point it gained him reputation, it gained him trust. So when he did get the call from Fox, and then when he did go to the controller of Radio 1 and go, can we do this? They said yes. This one-hour time slot did have a lot of different things going on in it. I think the week after this was a documentary on Oasis. So they were actually using that 7 till 8 time slot to put in non-music programming, but music-adjacent programming. And I suppose, by virtue of the fact that it featured Nicky Campbell. It featured Mark Goodyear. This is kind of music adjacent, but also Independence Day is very much the target audience of Radio 1, the kind of the young kids going to see the big summer blockbuster. So it's definitely a better fit for Radio 1. It's also really weird, whether on Radio 1 or Radio 4, to hear a radio broadcast start with a 20th century Fox fanfare. In the 38th year of the 20th century, a single radio drama... Orson Welles' version of H.G. Wells' The War of the Worlds caused millions of Americans to question whether what they were listening to was fiction or fact. Thousands fled their homes in fear. A few even took up arms against a supposed invader. Sixty years later, throughout the world, radio's influence has withered. It is a spent medium. It could never happen again. Could it? to contact them by radio. 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 One. Darnest noise ever. The UK's new music. 97 to 99 FM. Yeah, because you have that opening, you know, where it recaps Orson Welles that we talked about earlier. And then, yeah, it's just like, only time will tell if people will know if this is fake. And then 
the 20th century fox fanfare opens up and then boom straight back into the 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 radio one indents and stuff it is telling you this is a movie production this is going to be a movie level production here on on radio one independence day is going to be the biggest thing in this country so yeah on the biggest radio station possible with one of the biggest studios behind it it does feel big time I also love the opening with uh, but what in my notes I originally put as almost Wells. It's William Hootkins who we'll hear more about later. He was a guy that was called in to do Orson Wells' voices. It was one of his pieces, if you will. This was no first time round the rodeo for him. It was a beautiful little nod back to that 1938 original. But then we get into the broadcast and it very much feels like a radio broadcast. Welcome to BBC Radio 1's live UFO Watch special. Uh, I'm Nicky Campbell and if you've been listening in during today, you'll know that history is being made... That's another burst coming in. ...even as I'm speaking. Mark the time. We get Nicky Campbell welcoming us to Radio 1's UFO Watch and less than 45 seconds in, Patrick Moore is cutting him off and talking over him and is being peak Patrick Moore. Prickly and enthusiastic at the same time. Patrick Moore's my favourite thing in this in this whole deal. And it's not just for the, the Games Master connections, although in my notes I just call him Games Master because it was quicker to type than writing out Patrick. I, I think Patrick's performance is exceptional, particularly later on when he's going, Nicky, Nicky, and, and he has a fistfight with an alien, but also because Nicky Campbell calls him Patrick Moore. And, I, and that's a lovely little bit of regionalism there. He is like immediately like it's Nicky Campbell. And then all of a sudden you just hear the Games Master pop up and just, you know, trying to give some hints on Mega Man 2 while also trying to connect with aliens or whatnot. Or actually discover if this really is aliens or if this is just some nonsense that's come back from elsewhere. Because we join them aboard an RAF sentry high above England. And I love this that in the dialogue, Nicky's like, well, we... We've got this signal. This signal's come back to us. If you've been listening to us all week, you'll know we've been sending this signal into space. I love that. I love that it just went under the conceit of like, well, of course we've been listening all week. It's UFO Watch from Radio 1. What else would we be listening to? It's absolutely key. And it's just building in that universe that this is not just a one-off and something's happened. This is kind of the crescendo of a radio series that never actually existed. Yeah, it's great world building. And it also explains why Nikki is there and also why Patrick Moore is there. So that they it gives them a reason to be in this same place at the same time because they've been there all week hoping that something might come back. Sort of reply. Now, what we want to do now is to get a clearer signal and try and pinpoint it. And the RAF are taking the situation so seriously, they've actually diverted this aircraft from a mission over Bosnia so we can find out if we really are in contact with an extraterrestrial intelligence. And the RAF are taking this seriously enough that they've diverted the aircraft they're aboard from a mission in Bosnia, which that places this in a time and a place because... British forces have been in Bosnia since about 1992 at that point. The ceasefire and treaty on their civil war had only been signed in 1995, right at the tail end. And there were still forces there kind of acting as peacekeepers between the three different factions that were involved in the civil war. So just going, oh, it's his aircraft and RAF are treating it seriously enough. They've taken it away from Bosnia. Now, I'll be honest, I'm not sure I at that point appreciated the significance of that. But I suppose anyone over the age of 16, anyone in maybe that 18 to 21 bracket that was listening, it might just register just as kind of very much positioning it in our world. It's not like it's not key to the plot, but it is just an intricate little bit of detail that paints a broader picture. It's kind of in the same way that, you know, in 
the movie Independence Day, we have a fake president in Bill Pullman, whereas for this, they're using real-world leaders. Like, we hear from John Major, we hear from Tony Blair, we hear from Prince Philip, we hear from, like, actual, like, real-world people to just add this air of realism to it. So does this mean, in the universe of Independence Day UK, which is meant to be our universe, that Bill Pullman is actually the president? 100%, yeah, yeah. That, that, that was my reading of it anyway. And Patrick Moore is actually one of the people that is instrumental in, in saving this. It's Will Smith, Jeff Goldblum, and the Games Master. I know kind of London got blue to shit in this. I mean, spoilers. Can we go and live in that world? Because I think it might be slightly better. You never know. That coalition of... Blair and John Major. Who knows what might have come out of that? I thought you were about to say that coalition of Smith and Moore. <laughs> Did Jeff Goldblum ever meet Patrick Moore? I can't imagine their paths crossed at any point. But isn't it a shame? Isn't it a shame that it did? Yeah, you know, we didn't have that coalition of John Major and Tony Blair. Although, going by what it says, I think they're dead anyway. True. We, we hear about other people being evacuated, but the members of Parliament they're not on that list. No, I think it's pretty categorical uh, in this that uh, Tony Blair, John Major and Mark Goodyear are dead uh, but halfway through this episode. Again, spoilers. But Patrick Moore is chatting away to Jodrell Bank at a rate of knots. Nikki is not even keeping up, so decides to chat to group captain Phil Johnson, who sounds remarkably like Colin Baker, and says, so, UFOs. What's the deal with that? Is it all hush-hush, little green men? The RAF are obviously taking this reply to our deep space transmissions very seriously. Uh-huh. What's, the, um, what's the official position on UFOs? Is it like the X-Files, you know, that kind of top secret? <laughs> well, if it was, we certainly wouldn't be broadcasting live on Radio 1. Is it top secret like the X-Files? And the response to that is like, well, if it was, I wouldn't be talking about it on Radio 1. Massive slam on Nicky there, just like, no, you cretin. But... He does acknowledge, as the RAF has done, that sightings occur. I mean, a UFO doesn't mean aliens, it means unidentified flying objects. It's often associated with extraterrestrial beings, but it's not the only thing. A UFO could be a Russian spy plane, a UFO could be something from Korea, a UFO could be some sort of natural phenomenon or object. It doesn't have to be aliens, but it's the thing we most commonly associate it with. My wife, Becky, is a flight lieutenant piloting Tornado F3s from RAF Collingsby, a few miles from our base at Waddington. Good to know the RAF has female fighter pilots. I'll say that for it. Several in service, more in training. The RAF's an equal opportunities employer. But has your wife actually seen a UFO when she's been a pilot? She was once doing low-level night flying training over North Wales and found herself shadowed for several minutes by a very fast, very bright light. Nothing registered on ground radar, but she's not prone to hallucinations. Well, maybe we can radio down and talk to her about this later in the programme. Oh, I'm sure we can. Now, we've already heard some pretty shocking things on this podcast already, Ash. You sort of blew my mind a little bit earlier. Not only just with you know the amount of episodes that the Archers had put out, or that there was actually an earlier attempt at a War of the Worlds type of radio broadcast, but I don't think anything shocked me quite as much as learning that there are female fighter pilots. I just thought the knitting would have got in the way of all of that, and the thoughts of kittens and whatnot would have just meant that they really shouldn't be getting themselves into those sorts of... It's called a cockpit for a reason, guys. Do you know what I'm saying? Me and Nikki get it. I'm so glad you're joking. <laughs> Mate, we've made it through 150 episodes. Don't get us cancelled now. It's, it's Nikki's response. I'm just like, because like, you know, the RAF guy is just like, well, no, of course there are female fighter pilots, you fucking idiots. But Nikki Campbell's just like, oh, I'm really surprised by 
this. Royal Air Force is an equal opportunities employer. The reason why uh, Phil's wife Becky is brought up is, as you say, she's a fighter pilot. Also, she has encountered a UFO of some description. She's on duty, so maybe we'll get to speak to her a little bit later. Nikki is getting quite caught up in the history of this, and it's just like runs through the landmark events of the past century. JFK assassinated, the first man on the moon, John Lennon assassinated. A couple of assassinations there. I feel it's a bit lean towards the death. Well, we're going to see some assassinations later on of John Major and Tony Blair, I guess. Uh, I, I don't know what else. Um, New Coke, the invention of the Pop-Tart, all these landmark historical events. And this could be contact with life on another Same world. Thing. We may, we just may have made contact with life on another world. With respect, Nikki, we haven't established anything of the kind until we've located the source of the incoming transmission. Right, I see. It could be a perfectly straightforward transmission distorted by atmospheric conditions. But it is getting stronger, isn't it? But this is where Gamesmaster becomes my favourite part of this, where he's just like, every time Nikki gets dead excited that it's aliens, he's just like, ah, but it might not be, it could just be a simple transmission. And like there's later on when they're talking to Dimitri and he's just like, that's just science fiction. He's just always shutting down the idea that it's aliens. He is blocking the spacecock with authority in this episode. <laughs> no, it just could be normal transmission, a terrestrial transmission with atmospheric disturbance. Nikki's like, well, it's getting stronger. And Patrick's like, well, okay. <laughs> yes. maybe, maybe it is. But we're triangulating, Luke. Luke, have you ever triangulated? Uh, I, I have not, no. And I wrote this in my notes as GM says some tech stuff. It makes perfect sense, kind of. Jobble <laughs> Bank, Panama Ray in America, and Woomera in Australia. Great name. They're all receiving this signal. But they're all out of sync, because the curvature of the Earth means they're receiving them at slightly different times. And if you work out that delay, you work out where they are, it lets you work out the exact or probable position of the source. And we get something on a screen, and Nikki tries to describe what it is. Patrick doesn't know what it is either, which generally makes me feel slightly better about myself. As I said earlier, like, my note was, GM says some tech stuff, and that is kind of like, if I was writing notes for Star Trek, that's probably what I would write either, as like, Spock says some tech stuff. It's jargon, jargon, jargon. It's okay, you viewer at home. You'll understand soon enough. And then, you know, they get down to the little layman's terms parts of things, which is that the message that they've got is from 285,000 kilometers away. So Nikki's just like, well, that means that it's definitely from another planet, right? And again, Gazemaster's quickly like, boom, no, because the only planet that can sustain life is from eight solar systems away. This message is coming from our moon. This wizard comes from the moon. <laughs> but at that point, we get an entirely different kind of metaphorical cock block because GCHQ have decided to pop up and say hello and want to talk to Nikki. So we get to eavesdrop on the conversation and we hear mention of the real Radio 1 controller, Matthew Bannister, who you'll have heard Dirk mention earlier. I love this concept that GCHQ would call up the broadcaster during a live broadcast not because it's unbelievable, but because it's entirely too believable. I used to live near GCHQ. I grew up in the kind of next town over, and I would go to Cheltenham quite often. Uh, my nan was there, I had friends there. Shout out to Mensky, friend of the podcast. And GCHQ was there. Now, you could see GCHQ. It was along a main road. You could see the fences. You could see the guard huts. You could see the gates. There was even a bus stop. And the bus stop said, GCHQ, you go up to a guard at one of those uh, gates. Is this GCHQ? No. <laughs> You've got a bus stop, mate. 
you can literally get on a bus in Cheltenham and go, GCHQ, please, and they will take you there. But you go up to the guy on the door and you'll go, it's not GCHQ. This is your rather Borealis. I, I mean, I also just love that this, you know, they, they called live on air to Nicky and, you know, disrupted him doing his live broadcast because it was something that me and some other station managers did on student radio is that if someone was doing a live show, you just call the studio phone just to see what they would do, just to see how they would react in that panic situation, whether they would answer the phone live on air or they would just go to another song and then pick up the phone. But Nicky opts to answer the phone live on air here. And we just get this sort of wonderful little bit because you have half of Nicky's conversation, but you've also just got this line of, of Gamesmaster talking about how the radius is decreasing and, and this, that, and the other. And then it comes back to Nicky's like, we've been told that we've got to hand back to Mark Goodyear in studio. Hi, Nicky. Yeah, hope to get back to you soon. Yes, this is Radio One. Radio One. Are they all this powerful on planet Earth? First. Yeah, sorry about that. Seems to be a bit of a problem bringing you our live UFO Watch special. But this is Radio 1, the UK's music leader. I'm Mark Goodyear. Let's get on the dance tip with a tune which is going to be very big indeed for a man from New York. Here's Gusto and Chant. Luke, I cannot believe this is the second time that Let's All Chant has come up on this podcast. <laughs> and it's a different smegging version. Specifically, it's not even the radio edit, it's an extract from the full intention, full intended mix of Gusto's version of Let's All Chant. Yeah, that's right, I went the mileage of listening to all the different mixes of it just to work out which one it was. Because I put the radio edit on Spotify and I'm like, this isn't it. Sadly, we don't get to hear much of it. It was kind of a big hit for the man from New York, Gusto, though. It made it to 21 on the UK singles chart. That's not bad. That means it would have been played in that top 40 slot. Didn't do so well in the Flemish charts, only made it to 43. Can't, you can't have everything. Maybe next time. We don't get to hear much of it, though, because we basically more or less sent straight back to, to, to Nicky Campbell there and, and Mark. They're quite jovial, Mark and Nicky, about all of this, particularly Mark, because he's like, Nicky, are we allowed to talk about those little green men yet? <laughs> I don't know what wacky things you and Games Master are getting up to up there in his proper little smashy and nicey voice. Nicky was like, it's okay, everyone, don't panic. They just thought it might be Russians, and we wanted to rule that out <laughs> before you know we got to a real panic on our hands. 1996 going on 2022. <laughs> but whilst we've been gone, the plot has moved along. It's not Russians. There have been developments. Yeah, it's moving. Right, we've got Professor Dmitry Belov on the line from the Gagarin Radio Telescope Facility in the Ural Mountains, leading Russian astronomer. And an old friend. Hello, Dmitry. Patrick, good to hear you. Still playing the xylophone? Oh, yes, indeed. Now, Dmitry... And we've got another voice joining the fray. It's Professor Dmitry Belov, a leading astronomer and an old friend of Patrick's. Which you can tell because he asks him about playing the xylophone. I actually love the way Patrick acknowledged this because it felt like a very genuine, oh, yes, I do like the xylophone and I do love it so. It's also a smart little bit of writing as well because that's a setup for a joke that pays off much later on in the episodes like w without that line the line that nikki says much later on doesn't actually make any sense but here you have the setup for it so you know as a listener that he plays the xylophone yeah even if you've never heard of patrick moore before which in 1996 i find difficult to believe it it sets that fact up about him i remember him turning up on chat shows all the time with the xylophone it was kind of one of his bits i'm amazed there was never a xylophone gag in games master i'm actually a little disappointed but Nikki cuts off Patrick and Dimitri reminiscing about old times to say, well, does this prove that E.T.'s out there? And Dimitri's like, well, yes. 
Patrick steps in with the galactic cock block again and says, no evidence, no evidence at all. And Dimitri's like, well, actually, we've got a telescope pointed at the object. We can see it. It's moving towards Earth. They can see something. It's too zoomed in, so the resolution's not great. They can see something. They're not quite sure what it is. It's a bit featureless. What sort of shape is it? Uh, I don't know. I, I suppose like like a potato. I've heard it on an extraterrestrial root vegetable is heading for planet Earth as we speak. I love Nikki's line of, "Oh, great! An extraterrestrial root vegetable is heading towards Earth." And I'm like, Nikki, have you never seen the thing or invasion of the body snatchers? That's how it starts. Well, you know, Games Master though, he's got no time for Nikki's flight to fancy though. He's just like, "It's an asteroid. Has to be an asteroid." And Dimitri's like, no, unblock the space cock. It's 150 kilometres long and it's slowing down and entering an Earth orbit. And Patrick, in a beautiful piece of writing here, basically fixes one of the major problems with the film, which is he says, well, something of that size would play havoc with the Earth's ecosphere. And Dimitri's like, well, clearly, if that was going to happen, it would have happened by now. So that points to some sort of internal gravitational field and nullifying force. Nikki is as lost as you are at this point. I like this bit here where it's nullifying force because Game's Master just like, that's science fiction. There's nothing, no proof that this could be a thing. But it does fix that major issue from the film, which is oceans should have been floating away and stuff like that. And weather systems should have been going ballistic. It should have been like in Moonfall, that amazing film Moonfall, which I did finally watch. To find out what I thought of it, tune into our latest Under Console Nation. Okay, I guarantee you, though, Roland Emmerich never thought about that when he was making Independence Day. Because I never thought of it either. Spaceships in science fiction movies always come into Earth and nothing ever really does anything bad. But also a lot of those spaceships do have internal gravitational fields. Yeah, and, you know, I just presume this one's got one as well. But if you think it's actually a giant space potato and not actually aliens, then maybe it's more important. But anyway... I loved it. It fixed a problem in the original film. It's a nice little Easter egg, or, you know, space potato. Jordan on the line. Something's happening to the object. Beam news confirmed. Uh, I, I can see it's breaking up. Disintegrating in the atmosphere. No, 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 no. The, the, the piece is flying up. Uh, they're, they're, they're moving in a, in a pattern, man, maneuvering. Uh, Patrick, I'll have to leave you now. The, uh, the Kremlin are on the other line. Yes, of course. Um, thank you, Dimitri. And unfortunately, before we can get any more description of what's going on, we are GCHQ. Poor old Dimitri has got the Kremlin on the line. Probably wants to check the signal isn't British in origin. However, we now go to what might be one of my favourite moments of this whole thing, which is the newsbeat portion of this with John Franklin. 99 FM, Radio 1, Newsbeat. This is Newsbeat. I'm John Franklin, and within the last few minutes, the Prime Minister, John Major, has appealed for calm following the news that a large extraterrestrial object is now orbiting the Earth. We go now live to Downing Street and join our parliamentary correspondent, John Sloper. Yes, John, there's been quite a commotion here. The leader of the opposition, Tony Blair, has just arrived. One assumes he's been briefed on the situation. Mr Major and Mr Blair are approaching the microphone. Within the last 15 minutes, a large object unknown origin has entered the Earth's atmosphere. It is prudent to put all armed and emergency services on standby. I have had a conversation with Her Majesty the Queen in the last few minutes and notified her that as of now, Parliament is dissolved and immediately reconstituted with a coalition government of all parties, both in the Chamber and the Upper House. Mr Blair and I will share prime ministerial duties as from this announcement. Tony? Yes, uh, little to add at this point, except to reiterate Mr Major's call for calm. 
Uh, if the public listen for announcements over the broadcast media, we will keep everyone informed of developments. Thank you. When they sort of finish it, you can just hear, you know, reporters going like, oh, what does this mean? What does this mean? What's this? One of them just shouts, and this is a direct quote, will Tony and Sheree be moving in with you? It's just on the periphery of the hearing. It's so, so great. I... I, I was meant to mention this earlier. I once did a uh, a radio play for a brief period of time. My friends and I put together our own version of the Twilight Zone, which we aired for uh, YouTube. And I had grand ideas of it being a uh, a mass media thing. So we would have the TV show on YouTube. We would also have a comic book series to do some of the other scripts that I'd written. And we would do a radio play series that we'd release as podcast. We only ended up doing one of the episodes of the radio play. And it was about a guy doing an autopsy on an alien a featureless alien and the alien and sort of infecting him and stuff. And we had to film a reporter scene like this of like, you know, protesters outside and stuff and reporters. And I just remember one of my actors doing a line a little bit like that, that you can just hear off mic somewhat. You just be able to pick out a line that's not really supposed to be there and it sticks out from the rest of it. But it is very, very funny. And I thought it was very funny on the day. And I just got huge flashbacks to that with will Tony and Cherie be moving in with you? I love the little detail next of regular broadcasters can't cut away for their programming for now, so Radio 1 is the only place covering this. It's unbelievable, but it fits the story they're telling. If you did happen to be one of the people that didn't hear the start of this and have just caught like the last four minutes or so, and you've just heard this news broadcast that says that Labour and the Conservatives are joining together, and you're like, well, I'll better flick onto ITV or see what else is talking about this. Well, it turns out they can't because they can't be changing their scheduled broadcasts. I mean, BBC One is showing the Olympics from Atlanta at this point. And some things are more important. Newsbeat cuts away from Downing Street. We go back to UFO Watch, back to the plane. They're tracking one of the fragments from the larger UFO and it's slowing down. It's pretty big. There's a lot here that kind of reminds me of... Like Raymond Burr's role in the uh, the US edit of Godzilla. Like the US edit of Godzilla, the original one, is they took the original film and then filmed some scenes with Raymond Burr, essentially just stand there and explain to the audience or like translate to the audience what the Japanese uh, scenes are saying. Like Nikki Campbell kind of takes on that role a little bit because you can just hear like the RAF people chattering and Games Master is chatting about something. And Nikki Campbell is there to just be, and now those guys are going over there to talk about this. Patrick Moore is over here and he's doing that. It's actually a really smart use of Nicky Campbell in this role uh, to essentially, yeah, have him be the Raymond Burr of this. That is not a comparison I draw myself. And you're, you're bang on the button. It really works as well. It kind of helps provide the everyman voice as well. They're the viewer's window into this strange and fantastical world. Patrick's trying to get in touch with Jodrell Bank. Meanwhile, Nikki actually gets to talk to two tornado pilots. We've got John Reginald and wife of group captain Phil Johnson, a.k.a. Colin Baker, Becky Johnson, a.k.a. rock pop legend Toya Wilcox. Becky, Phil tells us you've experienced a UFO while training in low-level night flying. Uh, I can't honestly say I know what it was, but there was definitely an object shadowing me about 500 yards off my port wing. Could it have been, you know, maybe a reflection of your navigation lights or another tornado, perhaps? Well, it, it was definitely beside us rather than below us, and my nav saw, my navigator saw it too. There was no ground radar contact to correspond to it. As Reggie puts it, it was a flying object which we couldn't identify, so it fits the category of UFO. And Reggie... She never says 
you know, it's an alien. She just describes literally a UFO. And Reggie backs her up and reminds Nikki, we take this seriously. But at this point, we get your favourite bit. Nikki! Uh, right. Thanks. Nikki! Patrick, what's the news? Pretty alarming. Several hundred pieces broke away from the orbiting objects and fanned out. Each fragment is about the size of the Isle of Wight. Or so Drodzell's readings suggest. Wight? It's enormous. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Nikki, Nikki. It's a proper excited Patrick Moore, but also slightly angry because Nikki is not coming across to him yet. He's talking to Becky, and he's just like, "Sorry, Becky, I've really got to wrap this conversation up." While in the background, Nikki, Nikki, come quick! I found something. They're now tracking multiple contacts. Each one is the size of the Isle of Wight, probably just as lethal. And not only that, but satellites have gone. The satellite networks are down. Is it by accident? Is it deliberate? Who knows? And this is where we go back to John in Newsbeat, who, because he's close to the action, actually sends it up to Rod Plummer, who is in a cop to rend the sky because he might be able to get more of a bird's eye view of what is going on here. And he has some pretty terrific traffic chat. Uh, hello, Charles. Ah, uh, hello, Rod. Now, this uh, UFO, have you seen anything unusual approaching London? Well, we're currently heading south-southeast over Junction 1 of the M3 at Sunbury. Uh, fairly heavy traffic southbound for a Sunday evening. Well, well what, what about the UFO? Reports uh, indicate that it's heading in the direction of London and it's very, very large. Well, frankly, John, I uh, can't see anything. Uh, it's a reasonably clear sky. Uh, there's a bank of rain cloud drifting in from the west, so the roads will be slippery later. OK, so, so no sign at oh, all. hang on, John. Oh, my God. Hello, Rod. H- hello, Rod Plummer in the GLR helicopter. Hello? Sorry about that, John. I thought I disconnected the mic there. Right, OK. Um, yes, uh, visibility's a bit... If anyone who watches me in my day-to-day life, I love a bit of traffic chat, love a little bit of talking about Junction 1 on the M3, I, and southbound, all that sort of stuff. I think that's quite delightful. He can see a lot of traffic. He can't see a UFO, though, apart from, like, a big grey cloud. And there's a great fake-out moment here when he goes, oh, my God, and then it just goes completely silent. Are you okay? Are you okay? And he comes back. It's like, sorry, I just unplugged my microphone. <laughs> Why did you say, oh my God? But at that point, then he's like, huh, that's weird. That cloud's moving against the wind. Isn't I think the, the sun's just been blocked out. Strange. Anyway, back to the Newsbeat studio. They're going to try and get a microphone on the roof to get a better view of what's going on. We go back to Nikki and Patrick up in a plane. RAF Strike Command is now on active alert. The pilots we were talking to earlier have been scrambled. That's Becky Johnson and Reggie, uh, John Reginald. He's leading blue section, heading up the initial wave of tornadoes from RAF Coningsby in Lincolnshire to investigate this um, UFO over London. Now, I'm with Patrick... Because yeah, they're now on active alert, uh, and they, uh, they sort of do a lot more of, like, RAF fighter chat and this sort of stuff, and they're just heading over Bedford and sort of apologise to the windows in Watford because they're about to basically just go and smash them by flying over them, being the big sort of spacecraft thing that they are. The family home that I grew up in, we were on a flight path for military training exercises. It was not unusual for multiple times a week military jets to go over at I think what could be considered ludicrously low levels. It was one of those things of, I could be sat in my bedroom, window to the side, and I would see the plane go overhead. And then a second later, crackoom. The insane noise you used to get off of them. It was something else. Bluetooth copy over. Vicky, it's Patrick Moore. Oh, hello, Patrick. Blue leader tells us he's seen what looks like a dark cloud over London. Does this look anything like the UFO you told us about earlier? Over. I can't 
honestly say it does. We will have to take a closer look and then I'll let you know. But I, I wouldn't say so. Over. I love when they speak to Becky and they're just like, you know, they're talking about this huge, massive grey thing that's in the sky that's so big it's blocking out the sun. It's moving clouds and whatnot. And they're like, is this like the UFO that you saw back in the day? I was like, I think she'd fucking notice if it was the same thing, mate. Haven't I met you before? <laughs> yeah. But Patrick has some information from Jodrell Bank. There are multiple objects being tracked all over the world, approaching all major cities, but communications are being taken out at the same time. And boom, we're back to Newsbeat. Uh, yes, Nicky, actually, we're on the roof of BBC Broadcasting House next door. It's, uh, it's pandemonium here in West London. The sky is pitch black. It's, it's like someone put a vast black ceiling over the city. Um, this UFO stretches from horizon to horizon. Uh, the streets are packed with vehicles attempting to find a clear route out to, to get out from under this thing. Yeah, John's got a mic in his hand. This is like the, it's the climax of, of our first half here, which is with mic in hand, on the roof of Broadcasting House, talking about the pandemonium in West London. Like, this is just, this is fantastic stuff. This is, like, it feels so real and so genuine as, you know, they go back to Rod, who is still airborne, but they're being re-diverted to go to Buckingham Palace to pick up some very important people. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge, not sure who they are. And then it is just John talking about this darkness that has been cast over London. And he then goes to explain the energy beam process of the alien spacecraft of Inde- in Independence Day. Up until this point, this play has been quite fun, quite light, some good humour in it, some great moments, some good action and some good kind of like what I would call light tension. You know, it's, it's a mild peril, I think, is the, the word used by the BBFC. The biggest threat we've had thus far is someone unplugging a microphone. Or an irate Patrick Moore. <laughs> I'm not sure which is worse, to be honest. This description and the dawning horror as he realises the city is burning. It. I listened to this on broadcast. I've owned the tape multiple times. I've got a copy of it right here. I've listened to it multiple times before this episode. This segment still gives me a chill because you know what's coming and you're watching someone else realize so this is it i'm gonna die it's a really amazingly powerful little performance the fact that it was recorded running around a car park is slightly ridiculous and fun and dirk says what fun it was but the drama of the section itself is superb what i think is so impressive about this is that if you've seen the movie and you then listen to this radio play you can picture exactly what this looks like because they do such a good job of visualizing what that is. But also there's that shot in Independence Day in the movie where, you know, the group of hippies that are on the rooftop that are directly underneath it. It's so evocative of that moment. Like it it captures that moment and that feeling, but with sort of the panic of a news broadcaster who's realizing like, you know, they're, they're on the, the other building that has just seen another building explode. I think it's actually a, it's a brilliant, brilliant bit of editing and, and a brilliant bit of recording and a bit a brilliant bit of production. Well, I wish I could describe better for you the eerie quality of the darkness this huge thing has cast over London. And uh, it, uh, it, it's actually getting lighter again, but the, uh, the object isn't moving. It, it, there seems to be a growing line of bright light emanating from underneath it. It's like vast doors opening. It's uh, like a battery of searchlights. It's very directional very, very strong it's south of the river it's it's moving it's, it's moving northward it's very bright it's hard to see beyond it as it moves towards us but uh, it almost looks as if there were a twinkling light uh, no 
No, they look like fires. The, the skyline beyond is, is different now. It's, it's... Oh, my God. It's, it's, it's like a wall of destruction. It's raising everything in its path to the ground. Uh, if you can still hear me, uh, I'm trying to get to the fire escape. Hopefully, the radio mic will still work. The, the light is passing over the river. It's huge clouds of steam. The water is literally boiling. There, there goes Big Ben. It's truly horrible. It's moving up Regent Street towards Portland Place. Everything below Oxford Circus is a, a desert. It's a flaming desert. I'm going to try to get into Broadcasting House basement. Get out of the bloody way. The wall of light is on... Now, in the Wells version of War of the Worlds, that's the point where you hear the little lonely little voice, you know, 2L, 2L, calling CQ. 2X, 2L, calling CQ. Isn't there anyone on the air? Isn't there anyone? And this was the idea that there was still, you know, somebody calling for help, and then up comes Wells. As I set down these notes on paper... I'm obsessed by the thought that I may be the last living man on Earth. I didn't want to go there because I needed it now to get bigger. So this was the point where we moved from fairly, fairly tight stereo into ProLogic. That's where we kicked Dolby in. The first thing here are these, you know, RAF jets in through the shot. Because I always think in terms of camera setups and David Arnold's music comes up and so on. And we're in the RAF aircraft heading for this thing. And with uh, Becky Toya's character and um, and Reginald uh, Simon's character and their and their engineers uh, Pete Serafinowicz and Toby Longworth, and then we have this confrontation. We hear that the Jaguars crash into this thing, so there's a force field, and the story takes over. And then I can cut from uh, the Aria fighters to the AWACS aircraft, and I've got an A B storyline going in each case until the two storylines meet at the reservoir where um, Reginald's plane crashes with uh, Pete Serafinowicz. And it just so happens that that that's where also uh, Nikki Campbell and Patrick Moore have arrived and they encounter an alien and and Patrick punches the alien. It was just the stupidest thing. When I had that first meeting with my co-host Luke and I was saying, and we've got to do an episode on Independence Day UK, I don't think he'd heard it. And I yeah. sold it to him by going, Patrick Moore fist fights an alien. And that was <laughs> that was the line. When you did that flip, when you went from kind of documentary, real life broadcast to the kind of the explosion of the David Arnold score, kind of just becoming the fool, the, the audio movie, there is what feels like an infinite amount of silence between yeah. the, the, the end of London and that starting. Now, as I've got mm. some background in radio and I know there's all the rules and emergency systems in place about what happens if you have dead air. Yeah. Did you get any pushback on deliberately placing absolute dead silence in the middle of a radio broadcast? I told them I was going to do it and I knew exactly how long I could do it before the transmitters tripped out. So... It was the, then it came down to it's got to be. I think the at that time, and it may have changed, it took 40 seconds before the transmitters tripped out, and then everything had to be restarted. You basically lost the capability of broadcasting. 40 seconds is an eternity. I think in the end, it's about eight to nine, maybe 10 seconds before suddenly you're back in. And even that feels bloody long. The rule is you know, you make a program like this when it goes to continuity, you have 
a tape log sheet and on it you put NB in big red letters, eight second gap, 21 minutes, 18 seconds in or whatever it is, you know, so that they know it's deliberate and they don't do anything. It was quite, yeah, but it was a big deal. I, yeah, I had to explain that's it needed to be done because otherwise it wasn't right. So yeah, it was, it was uh, ambitious. But the thing was also I wanted when it came in with the Dolby Pro Logic, I wanted it to sort of like woof, open out. Everything I do after serving the needs of the story is to just show how insanely great sound as a medium is. Pictures are nice, but your brain is perfectly capable of creating them. Most people, some people have problems, but most people can do it. So we join Blue Squadron as they approach the saucer. We have gone from FM stereo to full Dolby Pro Logic. You can still listen to this on a surround sound setup with Dolby Pro Logic decoding. It's great. Becky, over to starboard. That's Wolfenstone. I can't make out a thing, Chris. That's what I mean. The object casts such a shadow, I can't see the buildings below it at all. That's what I mean. They're gone. It's all... Oh, my God. London isn't there anymore? Also, they shout out Walthamstow, so five out of five for me. It's been destroyed, Luke. But they said, just like in the set, they said Juncture 1 of the M3. Like, you know, you just say certain things, and you get five out of five for me. Walthamstow. Lovely stuff. I mean, destroying Walthamstow in 1996... Would you notice? They were just trying to stop the sourdough capital of London before it really got going. Oh, all that yeast. Across an immense ethereal gulf, minds that are to our minds as ours are to the beasts in the jungle. Intellects vast, cool and unsympathetic regarded this earth with envious eyes and slowly and surely drew their plans against us. Patrick. The War of the Worlds, Nicky. H.G. Wells, the earliest science fiction, has become today's science fact. And just in case you're wondering, is this an homage to H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds? Games Master just reads a bit of H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds. I love this little recital. It's part of the passage that opens the book. It's the opening passage to Jeff Wayne's musical War of the Worlds. There are probably people that know this passage that have never read the book, seen a film, or even heard the musical because it's that level of iconic. It is essentially the setup for almost every alien invasion movie ever. Mine's different to ours, vastly superior. They want something on this earth, and so they plan to take it. That is every alien invasion movie ever, pretty much. Apart from Moonfall, which... Hmm. I, 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 you know, credit to Games Master and Nicky Campbell, because this is a big ask you know, in terms of, like, performance here. You know, they've got to sell the fact that London has been destroyed. It's gone. Like, it's, it's completely gone. Which means that their friends and family are gone. Which means that their colleagues are gone. Which means that John Major is gone. They've got to sort of, like, sell all of this. And I actually think they do a pretty 
darn good job of it. Like Nikki's even told him, I was like, well, I need to go home and make sure everyone is okay. I thought maybe not even processing that there is no home to be going to there. Like Games Master's just like, I lost some dear friends down there. You know, he is sort of like the more rational one of the two, I guess. It was a big ask. Part of me thinks it was a bigger ask from Nikki than it was from Patrick. 100%. Because Patrick is a bigger performer. He he was such a presence and, you know, he was such a, a personality, a tour de force, a wonderful raconteur and someone that would sell stories and sell science and just be this amazing performer. He puts conviction into anything he reads, like Games Master. Nikki does a great job and I love that moment of denial that you just mentioned. But Patrick's also like, keep your chin up, mate. Hope is all around us. Human ingenuity. Nikki's, it's Nikki's turn to cock block. He's like, yeah, alien ingenuity, even worse. Yeah, they've got better tech than we have. So, I mean, hopefully these pilots can go out and find a, a weak point to the, you know, this massive thing that's in the sky. Jaguar Red Leader, this is Tornado Blue Leader, over. Blue Leader, Red Leader, copy, we have you on visual. Bloody hell, Reggie, where do you start on a thing this size? Over. We'll take a flanking climb around the edge to 30,000, see if we can reach its top side. Maybe there's something that looks like a weak point. Once we've found one, swing in over it and we'll cover you. Don't get closer than five miles till I give the word, over. Roger, Blue Leader. Arming warheads now, over. But we cut back to the fighter planes. We've got the Red Jaguar team, the Blue Tornado team. They come up with a plan to attack. Everyone checks in. Becky's still there. She also notices she's just been hit by some kind of power surge, almost like they've been scanned. It's a nice little touch. It's kind of that idea that they are a bit, that these aliens are kind of like checking them out, trying to work out what their deal is. Are they actually a threat? I also I want to point out here as well, the score for Independence Day is pretty bloody great. And it is throughout the second half of this, it's really, really nice. You've got David Arnold's score. You've also got additional music by Mark Russell that was put in to supplement the bits of David Arnold's score that were there. But I've always enjoyed the Independence Day score. It's a great piece of work for David Arnold. I think that kid's got a future. But we've got Blue Squadron and Red Leader lining up for attack. But they notice there's a discrepancy on the radar. And this is something Dirk brought up earlier, is that Jaguars don't have frontal radar. Tornadoes do. So the Tornadoes can see, huh, the radar says the ship's three kilometres ahead, but our kind of eyeballing says it's closer to five. Those Jaguars don't have forward radar. Red section, break off. Break off. Blue to blue leader. I know, Becky, I know. It's a boat field, an invisible shield of some kind. Out beyond the edge of the alien ship. They're too close. They're not going to make the turn. Blue section, pull out now. Red section, break off. Too late. Oh, God. We've lost contact with the third Oh no, this can't be right. The Jags are off the screen. What? It's a really good uh, companion to the movie version of this scene when they fire a missile at it and it hits the force field of like a real uh-oh, I, which we did not think this was a possibility. I mean, I think that this one is, is more dramatic because there is like big crash bang wallop to it, but it also has that real like dread of, 
oh no, we are in real trouble here. There's a lovely bit of dialogue in this as well, where they say, Radar's saying that this thing is going all the way down to ground level, but I can see daylight on the other side of it. And that's the force field. The force field literally descends like a curtain below the UFO. I think I prefer the way the Independence Day UK deals with this than the film. I think it's actually a far smarter way. Maybe maybe that's why they didn't go that way in the film, because the film is pretty dumb. But this audio play was actually quite clever. And I just think it's it's a really nice way of doing it. It's not a case of your first indication is when you've already shot a rocket off. Your first indication actually hits you before you've had a chance to go on the offensive. You're still approaching. It treads that fine line of it takes itself very seriously, particularly in all of the, the, the jet fighter scenes and the action sequences and things like that. But, you know, towards the end, it has huge moments of levity and humor and stuff, much in the same way that the the movie does. But I think that the balance of serious and humor is better here because the serious stuff is actually more serious. Whereas there are times when you watch a Roland Emmerich movie and you are not sure whether Roland is doing something serious or he thinks he's doing something serious, but is actually doing something funny. You you know what Dirk's intentions are. He, He knows what he's doing. I think he treats everything to do with the RAF very respectfully, which is entirely understandable. The RAF were immensely helpful in the production of this piece. You know, not only with permission, going over the script, providing notes, providing feedback, facilitating recordings, no need to use library sound effects. He was able to go out and record the real things. That's so cool. And it just really adds this sense of like kind of immersiveness to this next sequence where the Jaguars are destroyed and so the remaining blue squadron decide to try a frontal attack. They can get a lock with the sidewinders but before they can fire there's hundreds and hundreds of contacts and the alien fighters, the ones we see in the movie, they are swarming out of the ship and attacking. On the screen, what have you got? What's what's that big radar contact? The UFO over London. But these are new... Hundreds of them flying off from it. Holy smoke. The little glowing dots. Flow section, back out now. Abort, abort, bring land skipper. Good grief, what are those? At least 200 of them. Almost immediately, Blue Fork goes. Like, they've ejected, they've been taken down. The pilot potentially still alive, but the plane is down. Back in Eyeball, which is the uh, code, the radio code for the airplane that Patrick and Nikki are aboard, the warnings are being sent out. All fighters are hostile. All reserves are being called into the air. And Patrick, Mr. Doom and Gloom, says, if they can spot our aircraft so readily, I don't think think that the century we're in might be too safe itself so a bit of foreshadowing there and also fairly believable because if they can spot a small fighter jet they can spot this great thundering thing going through the sky it's basically a jumbo jet it is also a nice bit of dialogue to link everything together previously up until this point patrick and nikki stuff has kind of been separate from everyone else because they've been doing the radio broadcast that one line now puts them into the thick of the action because the alien spaceships can also find them. So they are also in danger. They're not just Thunderbird 5 out out in the wilderness. They are in the thick of it with the rest of them. It's kind of like the movie Independence Day where you've got East Coast, West Coast vibes going on. You've got David and his dad 
and they're in the East Coast, and they're going to Washington, D.C. And then you've got Steve, who is the West Coast, right on the right on the coast. They think they're having an earthquake at one point. That's how far west they are. And their stories eventually combine. And that's kind of what we get here. Much smaller scale, but we get two different sets of action beats. We get what's going on in Eyeball. We get what's going on with Blue Squadron. And they're drawing closer and closer together as the threat kind of closes in around them. Over. Negative, negative. According to the screen, you should have a helicopter in your 10 o'clock at 2000. Range 9 miles, single rotor, GLR written all over it. It's got an alien attacker on its tail. I need you to divert him off that chopper. Whatever you can do. Over. Got radar. We see them, but I'm not sure I can stop the attacker. Over. Do what you can, Becky. The chopper's carrying passengers. Anyone special? A royal family. Uh, uh, we're on it. Over. Be careful. And speaking of linking up previous story threads... We had that chopper that was going to uh, Buckingham Palace to pick up some VIPs. Becky gets sent to essentially protect that chopper because that chopper is being tailed and that chopper has, done, 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 the royal family on it. Or does it? Because bloody intelligence services. It's like, can you confirm the royal family's on board? No. I bet <laughs> you that guy used to be a security guard at GCHQ. But eventually, Prince Philip <laughs> takes the radio and he's like, right. What do you want? Colonel, please let me speak to your pilot. Over. As I've said before, I'll get a Oh, the alien craft is probably at stalling speed, sir. If you throttle back on my mark and veer off to port, I may be able to get him off your tail. Over. Good idea. Standing by, over. Chris, warm up the sidewinder. Already. Better be sure it doesn't lock onto that chopper's exhaust pipe. No worries. The helicopter doesn't generate anything like the heat of the attacker. Yes, yes. And Becky, getting over the fact that she'd previously been mistaken for an air stewardess, says that they've noticed that the alien aircraft behind them is following but not attacking. Like it can't get a lock on, like it can't find the heat signature. And so they suggest just throttling right back, like cutting the engine down to absolute minimum, peeling off to the side, and then letting them literally take the heat, kind of like divert the UFO with a heat signature. And it works. The UFO gets lost briefly. She catches it unaware with a sidewinder to the side. And boom, it crashes straight into the ground. Humans won. It's a really, really great sequence. And, you know, it's something that comes up later on, that sort of idea of how do we avoid these alien spacecrafts and stuff. The only other thing I want to point out is when we do, because we kind of cut between the two things, like when she learns and then when she does the fighting. And in between that is Nicky Campbell asking for weapons, because it turns out Nicky Campbell's a badass. He's not the action hero we deserve, but he's the action hero we need. Or is he? Because Patrick's still got a chance <laughs> a bit later. I was going to say... <laughs> Because they are now also being chased by an alien craft. And they now have got to try and come up with the same way to avoid being taken down. Thankfully, Blue Leader, Reggie and Max, meet up with Eyeball, a.k.a. Bill, Patrick, Nikki and co. And essentially, shoot the alien invader in the arse. Now we're stuffed. Max, how far are we off from Rutland Water? You know, with the dam at one end. 35 miles. You'll never make it. We're running on vapour as it is. Just point me at it, Max. And let's get that little sod off Eyeball's tail. I'm going for guns. He's nicely in the display. Squad of cannon up his rear end. Hey! Hey! He did it! The alien's up our tail. 
that is, that is more or less what I've written here. I have said, uh, cannon up the rear end. As a result, entirely understandably, it stops its attack on Eyeball and takes off after Blue Leader, who unfortunately is basically running on fumes. They didn't stop the, the service station near Walthamstow because it had been destroyed. And as a result, they have run out of fuel. But they decide to head towards a reservoir because at the very least, it's going to be a softer landing. Three miles, right engines flamed out. Fancy a swim? Don't forget, I'll say eject twice, but you won't hear me the second time. Because you'll be gone, I know, one mile. Eject, eject. Yeah, you got some great chat of, you know, like, you won't hear the second eject. I know, I know, because you'll already be gone, friend. It's, it's amazing sort of foley work and stuff, and the eject to see, and the, the eject, 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 you know, the, the, the second one. And he crashes down, and it just cuts back to the road trip movie you never knew you needed of Nicky Campbell and Gamesmaster in a Land Rover going across the countryside. Won't this thing go any faster, Nicky? I'm sure I heard an explosion. You did pick the most clapped-out vehicle at RAF Coningsby, Patrick. Look, that glow beyond that ridge. This must be the shore road. It's at times like this, I wish I'd gone on that Radio 1 Red Cross course. You've got car stickers, a free keyring, and a Michael Jackson video on interesting bandages. Because essentially, Patrick had suggested that they commandeer a jeep, so when they get there, they can go out, they can find Reggie and Max... They might have to make a water ditch, which is what they did, and they might need some help. I thought Reggie's plan was really, really smart because one of the other things that carries through from both the movie into this and back again is that the alien fighters are determined to the point of being stupid. Once they've got a lock on, they will follow. And in this case, that means it follows them essentially into a lake. Which leads us to a sequence in which an alien gets out and it is brilliant. Peter Serafinovich, radio play acting. There you are. Look at that. Nice alien attacker brought down by us. Sorry? Sorry, I didn't catch that. Say it again. It's opening. Oh, God. Bloody hell, lost my gun in the reservoir. Oh, ugly kid, isn't he? Reggie's just like your giant overgrown cockroach. <laughs> We better try making a run for it. It's like, you know, really good radio play performance. How about we take you to our leader? Nicky, look, on the road ahead. It must be an alien pilot. And it's heading for those two guys at the water's edge. We've got to stop it. And then Nicky Campbell turns up <laughs> and hits it with a Land Rover. I then loved even more was him going over to Max and saying, I'm Nicky Campbell, which, fair enough, introduction you might need. But he then goes, that's Patrick Moore, the astronomer. And I'm like, mate, he's not that concussed. I think he knows. And Patrick Moore, he's got really good tips for Super Castlevania 4, if you want to ask. <laughs> Patrick, meanwhile, decides to have a close look at the alien roadkill. And what follows is probably the most iconic scene of this entire radio play. This thing is still alive. But keep away. Away from the alien. It's not safe. Come on. Patrick knows what he's doing. Patrick, get back. It's on his feet again. Lend us that line to put a revolver in the glove box just in case it's this is the case he meant. Either I'm concussed or I'm watching Patrick Moore fist fighting with an extraterrestrial. He is. 
Either I'm concussed or I'm watching Patrick Moore fist fighting an alien. A fight that is cut short with the aid of a revolver. Yuck. Patrick, are you all right? Okay, I mean, obviously, some of your works have been that were from the nineties have been re-released on CD. Sadly, Independence mm. Day UK is not one of them, and I think I'm on my third or fourth tape copy at this point. I live in hope that at some point, Twentieth Century Fox will do a big anniversary set for Independence Day, and we'll pay the license mm. fees and that you know there will be a beautiful pristine digital copy of it just just you yeah. know an uncompressed it would be nice wouldn't it i'm not sure who owns the rights this is this was always a little bit of a tricky issue because it was uh it was always um a bit of a toss-up with the fox who who actually owned it and dean and roland might even actually own it i don't know but it's a strange setup that's where my original hitchhikers didn't happen with douglas because although douglas wanted it to happen and was happy for me to do it it, it, the rights got in a mess and so it was only untangled at the end of the decade when pretty much he died which is awful but you know so we were in the studio we were doing it and it was really fun and you know a real laugh and we'd run out into the car park outside to get outside sounding recording so i think the whole business around the reservoir with the fight with the alien happened there but Patrick wasn't there for the fight, and I wasn't sure how good Patrick's fighting acting was. So, in fact, on the recording, it's Toby Longworth doubling Patrick fighting the alien, while having delivered the line, Peter Serafinowicz is doubled up with laughter because fist fighting sounds like something else to him, and he's killing himself in the background, corpsing while we're trying to do it. And I hadn't even thought about it. Yeah, look, it's Patrick Moore fist fighting an alien. Peter doesn't really do hysterics, but he did on that occasion. So we recorded it, but we hadn't got Patrick. So I had to get him up from Celsius in a cab. Came to the sound house, walked in, all the power went off. I was going to do all his lines on his own and read them in, which is, you know, what I've been doing a lot on Sandman in the lockdown. So he walked in and the power just went. And it was like not even the main fuse. It was a power cut for the whole area. So I had to ring around frantically. And luckily, Heavy Entertainment, which who were sort of a bit further north and east in London, had a studio and they still had power. So we ran up there and did the recording. And it was very straightforward. I mean, Patrick was an absolute gem. He just totally did it in front of you. Yes, of course, no problem at all. And of course, he just did it because he's just being Patrick and totally authoritative, whether he's talking to someone about, oh, well, of course, you know, space is very large and all that stuff, you know. It's a long way down to the chemist, but that's just peanuts to space. You know, he's doing all that. And the whole thing was I, I wanted him to, um, to suggest a way to escape the aliens. So the idea was that they take uh, the new Eurofighter, which is now the Typhoon. They'd steal one and he's in the back seat and, you know, make a joke about only just being able to get the harness on or whatever. Okay, you, you were right in the back end. Yes, this is terribly tight, terribly tight. And then they fly right up directly into the air vertical. And then they cut the engine and then drop. And of course, without the heat signature of the engine, uh, little croissant-shaped alien ships can't chase them. So that was the kind of the closing gag. And then you went to them escaping to France or Lebanon or somewhere and saying to each other, well, of course, you know what's going to happen. What, whoever wins this, the Americans take credit for it. Which um, Dean Devlin 
um, had the grace to find funny and let me keep it in because, you know, I thought that would go, that would get cut. And Patrick was just wonderful. Um, and, you know, I knew him till his death. In fact, you know, he was, uh, we, we stayed friends. And because I'd worked with Brian May on Spider-Man and Patrick on this and knowing, knowing that Brian had been an astronomy uh, student and had not finished his doctorate because he was, you know, he had some band he was in. And I said to Brian, you ever met Patrick Moore? Oh, yeah, yeah, I did briefly, but, you know, um, only, you know, it was just in passing. I said, well, do you want to meet him? You know, I said, oh, yeah, yeah. So I rang Patrick thinking, you know, he's going to love this. I said, Patrick, oh, would you like to meet Brian May? Brian May, who's that? Uh, I said, he's from a, a pop group called Queen. Uh, never heard of them. So very briefly, this was, um, this was 96. This was the year that Independence Day UK came out and the movie. Took uh, Brian down to Selsey. And obviously Patrick had then read up and realised who he was. And Brian very sweetly had brought a whole bunch of vinyl with him um, of both Queen stuff and his own stuff uh, on the basis that Patrick possibly wouldn't have a CD player. He'd be a little bit too old fashioned for that. <laughs> Patrick met us and uh, he said, um, said, come on in, come on in. But before we, before we go all the way through, come out of the garden. I've got Saturn in the 15 inch uh, refractor. And uh, so it done and it was Saturn. And I'd never looked through a telescope before like this. And there's bloody Saturn, and it's there now, just with the rings, the whole deal. It's up there, you know, and it's kind of, that's quite an amazing thing. And, um, and Brian looked, and Patrick said, uh, any requests? And Brian said, oh, I'd quite like to see, can I look at Andromeda? And Patrick sort of said, yes, 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 of course. And then he starts um, raising this telescope. It's like a sort of World War II Bofors gun. You have to sort of do this <laughs> wheeling with both hands thing to get that thing in there. And of course, the, it hasn't been oiled in centuries. And it's on the on the plane of the ecliptic, which is where the planets are, which is actually quite a level plane around us. Andromeda is sort of overhead. So this poor old, this thing creaking up. Anyway, just memories of the occasion. Then we went back inside, had a lovely meal, plenty to drink, way too much to drink. And we ended up sitting in Patrick's living room with its um, uh, lunar module uh, with a glass top coffee table brass lunar module with a glass top beautiful like, xylophone along one wall saying do not place drinks on the xylophone and bless him and patrick's playing us cassettes of his brass band music he's composed with the rf band you and i'm sitting there and this is surreal i'm sitting here with one of the world's greatest living rock guitarists and this wonderful authority on space a man who's shaken the hand of both orville wright and Neil Armstrong, and we're sitting here listening to these grainy cassettes of Rumpty But it was just lovely. And the music was very good, very good brass band music. And as we drove back through the lanes about 2 a.m., Brian was going to drop me off where I live in Winchester and then go home. And often Brian has been inspired by this. He's, he turns the headlights off on the car and he looks out the window. He's driving and he says, my God, the sky tonight, it's, it's all... It's all, you know, meant to be. And I just said, please, for God's sake, put the lights on and drive. <laughs> I don't want there to be a headline tomorrow. Rock star dies with unknown passenger. <laughs> <laughs> it was just fantastic. And they remained firm friends. And what I was really pleased about, what, what arose from all this is that Brian actually made sure Patrick could stay living in that house till the end of his life. He actually made that financially possible, which was just a, well, that's beautiful. a superb thing to do. But in return, Patrick made Brian finish his PhD. 
and get his doctorate. And we had this huge uh, party at Farthings in, in 2007 to celebrate that. And everybody had to dress scientifically. And of course, Patrick being always contrary, turned up dressed as Dumbledore, which is just brilliant <laughs> as a wizard. Everyone else is in white coats. It's so cool. So leaving aside, I'll be honest, the quite amazing story of the friendship between Patrick Moore and Brian May and everything that went with it. I'm sorry, Luke, it wasn't Patrick Moore fist-fighting the alien. That's a real shame to learn. You know, sometimes when you do these podcasts, you think you're going to learn a lots of like things that will just paint more colours around the beautiful picture you have in your head. But actually what you find is a lighter that is just burning that picture. There's sometimes, Ash, there's too much to learn and you don't want to learn everything. But on the flip side, you did also learn that Peter Serafinowicz thought the line sounded like it was saying Patrick Wall was fisting an alien. <laughs> At least we have Patrick, you know, the line was like, what a horrible experience. It's the most unpleasant thing I've ever had the misfortune of being attacked by which tells you that he's been attacked by lots of things over the years, and that's the worst of them. I mean, he did work at the BBC in the 70s. Yeah, and with Dominic Diamond. Dave, Dave Perry was around. <laughs> Becky! Bill, thank God you're in one piece. Chris, good to see you. Just don't kiss me, group captain. Excited to break up a winning team, but Becky's posted the Lucas Defence Force. And yellow section are all en route to the Middle East, except for one aircraft that needs a navigator. That's you, Chris. Mm, fine. I'll uh, get my stuff. Take care, Beck. See you, Chris. Back at the airbase, we get a bit of reunion. Becky and Phil are together again. And guess what? They've got some new navigators. Patrick and Nikki have volunteered to take the navigator's seats for you and Phil. Quite like the old days for me. They're flying with us. As long as somebody shows me which button not to push. It's a long road to get to this point where they're just like, well, we've got this many ships, we've got this many pilots, this doesn't go into it. It's like, oh yeah, Nikki and Games Master are going to be your co-pilots. Now, Patrick, former navigator in the Air Force, absolutely makes sense. Nikki Campbell, radio DJ, I'll roll with it. I mean, he's yeah. used to talking. The president flew a plane in the uh, in the movie. Why can't a Radio 1 DJ do it here? Uh, Reggie doesn't need a co-pilot, however. He's taking up the new prototype EFA, a European fighter aircraft that's not due into service until the year 2000. Oh, Luke, do you think we'll have it by the year 2000? Well, not if the aliens keep up their ways. But it's got speech recognition. And given this is a good few years before Siri, I can't imagine it's much more reliable. This is a story, I think it has been told on, on other podcasts that I have done in, uh, recently. One of my co-hosts, Dan Layton, was uh, playing a game of Blood on the Clock Tower with us. It was the first game he ever played with us. We have a break in between those two games, and he went to find some tips on how to be a better player at Blood on the Clock Tower, which is a social deduction uh, game for the second game that we did that afternoon. So on his uh, Google search thing, he used his voice command to search for blood on the clock tower tips. And what his uh, Google search came back with for YouTube was blood on the cut fat tits. Oh man, his recommendations are going to be interesting for the next few months. I can tell He's you that much. Absolutely screwed that up that homepage. I bet you better hope his parents don't come around anytime <laughs> yeah. soon. But Patrick says that being a navigator will be much more interesting for Nikki than that horrible pop music. <laughs> And Nicky zings right back. Why did you volunteer me, Patrick? I can't read a map for toffee. All you have to do is to follow the checklist. Much more interesting than playing all that horrible pop music. Yeah, there speaks the xylophone player. This from the xylophone player. Paying off. 
the setup we had earlier on with Dimitri. Reggie gets into the cockpit of the new fighter, makes a Space Invaders joke. I like that. Video game reference. Lovely stuff. Which Games Master recognises. Of all the people to recognise it, he knows. Ah, yes, I know how to get you a high score. That one. <laughs> Patrick is finding the flight suit a little bit snug, and I imagine the backseat of Becky's tornado isn't much better. But there isn't time to put the chair forward, because they're under attack again. This is Blue 3. Nikki's got three fast contacts converging from the west. Could be alien attackers over... Your eyes peeled, everybody. Another five minutes and we're over the coast. Let's hope it's a ghost image. I don't think so. Attackers at four o'clock. Break. They are indeed. And they've got to try and find what the weak points are. Like, visuals are not their strong thing. Like, he has this very good diatribe about, like, how they're essentially moths. And moths are attracted to the light bulb, not the candle. And it might be that they have got very good vision. It's just not far enough. And then he goes, hmm, let me have a think. And he sits there and he puzzles and puzzles until his puzzler is sore and he comes up with a solution to this problem. Meanwhile, they're being shot at. <laughs> and you're going to take Games Master being like, hmm, what could that possibly mean? Think, Games Master, think. Well, first you go to the tavern and you buy a... Ta- oh, no, wait, that's the wrong thing completely. Look over that hook shot. We need to climb as high as we can and then throttle back our engines to almost nothing. Patrick, with no power, these aircraft fly like bricks. Phil, it's our only chance. Do you think you can do it? Do I have a choice? As we drop back down, bank to port and try to keep your nose up. On our mark, the tornadoes will turn off every missile they are carrying, but we mustn't let them lock onto any other aircraft. You'll have nothing left to defend yourselves with. It's a long shot, but if it works, we may not need them. Nicky says he hopes Patrick knows what he's doing. To which Patrick responds in a different plane, I hope I know what I'm doing. I loved it. I loved that. So good. Great comedy. As the sort of, you know, our our duo of this piece, that's a really lovely moment for them to have. You can visualise it as a movie sequence of how that would be cut together. It's so, so nice. It's a really, really great thing to show the sort of friendship and relationship that they have grown over their UFO watching week. So sad we didn't get a follow-on spin-off series of Nikki and Patrick's excellent adventures. <laughs> Just going around the world debunking like, or, or encountering, basically like going in search of the Yeti and the New Jersey Devil and all that stuff. Going to Area 51. 69, dudes. <laughs> we get a start here as well of the war with the... Uh, the voice recognition software with uh, with the line, oh, shut up, you talking clock. Have a nice day. <laughs> Phil, are you ready to release missiles? On the arm, Mark. Just get up a bit more if I can. 28 seconds to a minimum safe ejection altitude. Oh, shut up, you talking clock. All aircraft, stand by for missile launch. Three, two, one. Missiles away. Missiles away. You know, I think they fell for it. They execute the plan. Every alarm possible in the experimental aircraft goes off. It is every single whoop, bell and whistle. But the missile's away and the fighters take the bait. Phil has some issues with his stick. You should see a doctor about that. Wait, is there anything I can do? Get up and push. Hang on. She's coming up. The wing's flapping. Well, it works for the birds. Yes. I do like Nikki saying, is there anything I can do? And feels like, get out and push. <laughs> get out and push. Shut up, Nikki. 
They think they're all in the clear. Philly's on his way to the coast. But wait, Patrick has noticed something. Oh, my goodness, look at that. Do you see something, Patrick? What? Alien attackers? No, a lovely clear view of Venus on the horizon. What a shame I didn't bring my sketch pad. Never mind, Patrick. The minute we land, I'll bring you a large scotch. And it's our last moment of these two together, who really have been the 3PO and R2 of this little adventure we've been on. Patrick Moore is 100% R2. He just says, do you know what? I will bring you a scotch. I love that mental image. A nice large scotch. Yeah. Aliens may be destroying the Earth, but chin chin, it's scotch o'clock. Our sort of final sequence of this is... Reggie going off to do his sort of little side quest mission that he's sort of on. He's got to go, he's got to refuel, but because he's taken a bit of a hit, he's got to go elsewhere to refuel and then he can head off. And it's basically here so he can have one last final fight with not the aliens, but the talking clock that he had issues with in the last sequence, because the talking clock will not throw up the IFF to let this tanker know that he is a friend. Otherwise, they're going to shoot him out of the air. Yeah, he's got two issues, one of which he's leaking fuel, so he can't travel to his original destination. And the second of which is he's being chased by friendlies. So his two options at this point are run out of fuel or be shot at. Computer, IFF signal on now. Please repeat slowly. Turn on the identification friend or foe signal now, please, or I'm stuffed. IFF on. Thank you. My pleasure. Give me a break. And eventually, the shipboard computer does switch on. He lands on the aircraft carrier, and as soon as he's landed, ejects into the ocean. <laughs> Poor lad can't catch a break today. But he essentially, we wrap things up by being told Becky and Co are fine. Becky was even invited to Balmoral for a spot of tea. And I was like, lads, there's fucking a fish to fry. The aliens aren't dead yet. So let's not be just breaking for scotch and tea, shall we, just yet? Mate, mate, it's Independence Day UK. There's always time for tea. And how dare you, there is always time for scotch. There's not time for celebrating, is more what I meant. When this is all over and we've defeated these monsters, the Yanks will take the credit for it. You wait and see. Um, yes, sir. You've been listening to they have this brilliant final line here where it's like, you know what'll happen, don't you? When this is all over, the Yanks will take credit for it. Lots of great things came off the back of this. Two memories that, that come back. First of all, it just so happened in the run-up to it, there was a kids' program. It was kind of magazine reality program presented by Danny Minogue. Mm, yes. And and they wanted to do something about sound effects, and they got in touch with me. And it's like, crikey, Bobs, what am I going to do? So uh, they turned up with a film crew, and Danny was charming. And, I thought, and so I thought, oh, alien dying. That's what we'll do. So I got a bunch of props. I got a wet fish I could slap and a big old fish. And Danny could do the scream, the dying scream of this alien. So we did this thing to camera. I've still got it on video somewhere. 
of Danny interviewing me and me showing her how various sound effects are made and you know how what we were doing combination of digits and tape and so on and then in the end for a splosh sound I threw a bucket of water on the car windscreen because that was quite a good you know sort of splosh and slowed it down and things like that and Danny did a really good scream so that was the scream of the dying alien that's why it says alien effects by Danny Minogue which is the weirdest credit ever yep it's the last credit on the uh, the insert and the only other memory is it was the last time to my regret that I worked with William Hootkins who was one of the fighters in uh, Star Wars, the first Star Wars movie, The New Hope. He was Porkins, the big one. Yeah, it's a, it, in retrospect, it's a horrific name. It is a horrific name, but but Hookins would rise above anything like that. He was such a great actor. And he was also in the first Indiana Jones movie because mm. he's the, the CIA guy who says, we need top men, Dr. Jones, top men. He was just a wonderful actor and there were so many stories that Hookins I, I could tell about Hookins, but I can't. But the thing about it was I went to see him because we'd become really friendly and he was terribly sweet. And when I had problems in terms of uh, the job, you know, where people I wasn't sure about, I would always ask Bill's advice because he would know. There was one person I was working with and I wasn't sure about it, and I told Bill about it. And he just turned and he said, there are 16 of him on every street corner in LA. Run. It was so cool, <laughs> you know, like avoid like the plague. So I turned up at Bill's and he was a big guy. Yeah, but he just had this charisma. He walked in a room, raised the temperature by a couple of degrees. And all he did on Independence UK was give us this opening spiel of, in an Orson Welles voice because Bill did Orson Welles when Orson Welles needed looping and he wasn't available before he died. And that was just magic because he, he was... You know, I, I went and I said, I don't know if you'd be prepared to do this, but I, I just need someone to be Orson Welles for about a paragraph. And it was so great because, you know, imposter syndrome is never far away for any, from any of us in life. I said, Derek, you didn't have to come and ask me uh, if, it, if your name's on it. I've told the agent just to say yes. Oh, that's lovely. Because he was Lex Luthor in our yeah, Superman. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, he was, yeah, um, yeah the, the Adventures of Superman series that you did. Because yeah. he, he had a very interesting storied kind of career on Radio 4. I mean, you just look at some of the, the roles that he played, the notable mm. historical figures. I mean, uh, Winston Churchill, oh, J. Yeah, Edgar yeah. Hoover, and yeah. Orson Welles, all these very iconic voices and performances, and he just turned his hand to all of them. And he was brilliant. And also... We we used to have summer parties and barbecues at our place and uh, he would come down and our kids, he was wicked Uncle Billy for our kids <laughs> and he used to sh shove sweets up his nose and blow them out and things like that. All, all the things that you'd want a wicked uncle to do if you were a kid, he did all those naughty things, you know. He was a, a, a wonderful guy and, you know, lost, went far too early. I mean, I love genre movies of all ages and I still mm. get an absolute joy when people like him turn up. He'll, he'll give it his best shot, even if it's a, a crap movie. He had a terrible time on the island of Dr. Moreau. Val Kilmer took a, took a dislike to him. That movie, there's, there's documentaries on that movie. That's, that was yeah. a nightmare. Well, I know, a horrible nightmare. And um, Bill, uh, poor Bill, um, he had a really good part and he got thrown off the part. There were stories that Kilmer would, um, didn't want him in his line of sight. And when they were shooting on some islands, and so he had to be on a different boat from Kilmer going to and from the island. I mean, it was just, I don't know what Bill could have done because Bill, you know, was as lovely as anyone I know. Um, the first time I worked with him was in 89 on a thing called Death Rides the Airwaves, written by Mark Brissenden, um, who later adapted the Marx Brothers shows we did. 
Death Rides the Airways was a pastiche of a 1940s kind of radio series, and it was really fun. And Bill was in it, uh, along with David Graham, Parker from Thunderbirds, and Lorelai King, who was Lois in uh, uh, Superman things. And he was shooting Batman on at night and then coming in and acting on Superman in the day. And he came in one day and said, I just had the best night shoot, shoot with Jack Nicholson. And I said, oh, really? What were you doing? He said, I played him Death Rides the Airways all night. They couldn't get the lighting right, so we just played Death Rides the Airways. He, he loved it. And it was just so cool. So Jack Nicholson loved that silly old Death Rides the Airways, thanks to Hootkins. It was the best. It was Eckhart. I think he was Eckhart, Eckhart in Batman. that was it. Yeah, the, yeah. The, 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 the sort of the greasy cop. So it was all in the can. We got it done. Really pleased with it. Paul Dealey had done a brilliant mix in Dolby Surround. You know, it sounded really, really good in the room. We were going to have playback. And so Matthew Bannister booked the Soho House's uh, viewing theatre on the top floor of Soho House in um, Soho, which was, you know, the prestigious club. I think I took it on CD, and, you know, because I checked they could play a CD through their, their system, and they could. And so went there, it got set up, and I was sitting, and, and Phil came, the guy, the, the, uh, the, the wing commander, and it was lovely. And uh, Nikki came. Uh, Patrick didn't come, but the cast did because, you know, they're actors, free food and drink. <laughs> and they played it. And the front left speaker wasn't going. And by now we, it was running and we couldn't stop it. So it was this weird kind of one leg going around the room, except for that rather important corner. I mean, it was still all audible. Matthew had his like head in his hands. Oh, no. Because the press were there as well, you know. And I just ran to the back of the room, grabbed a bottle of red wine from a table, got the biggest glass I could, poured it up to the brim and gave it to him and said, oh, just enjoy it. What the hell? Um, <laughs> and I do remember that. And it went fine. It went fine. But um, yeah, that was the final thing. But getting Matthew drunk enough to get through, um, get through the playback. Despite the speaker failing, this was very well received. This won awards. Yeah, we did. In fact, I have one here. Wait a moment, please call up. That's okay. This is the... Best Production Award for the Talkie Awards. This was uh, quite prestigious at the time. We're very, very pleased with that. That was one of the, the, the upshots. The other upshot was David Arnold emailed me and saying, you bugger, you're higher up the charts than I am. With the, <laughs> with these, I wrote the fucking music and there you are at the charts with your tin pot English version. He was joking, of course, you know, because he's a good guy. But it was quite funny. Very briefly, we... We were charting ahead of the soundtrack from the movie. It, 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 it soon went back the other way, but that was funny. Good composer. I, I think he'll go far. Oh, <laughs> I, I, I reckon he may, have, he may have a future. Might, might have something ahead of him. <laughs> One thing that struck me is obviously you pioneered audio movies and you talked about how changing this production and it came through obviously all the various com comic adaptations through Independence Day UK and is continuing now with the work that you do for Audible with the Sandman series, also the unproduced Alien 3. Yes, the, the Gibson, that was fun. Working with Lance Henriksen and uh, Michael Bean, that was fun. And now, I mean, even via the technology that we are talking about, I mean, I'm behind a reasonable dynamic microphone. I can see you've got mm. an SM7B in front of you. These mm. are all accessible and something we're capable of producing in the home. Mm. And with your own work for Audible, Audible's other original plays, do you think that the, I guess, audio drama as a format is healthier today than it was, say, in 1996? Or do you think it's the same, but it's just changed medium? I think there's more of it. It's the quality I worry about. I love that podcasting has given 
spoken word audio a new lease of life you know that's 20 years ago i couldn't catch a bloody cold i i was fighting to keep things going i was pitching sandman from 1992 to the bbc and all through the 90s and then all through the 2000s and bbc radio 4 kept telling me that they wanted something to bring in younger listeners i.e people under 50 and i would say let me do a neil game and you won't be sorry and it wasn't till 2011 and someone else inside the corporation suggesting it that they finally did it and when they did it neil being an absolute sweetheart said well if dirk's involved i'll i'll, I'll let it happen it was dying on its feet and the bbc were the home of spoken word audio in the world canadian broadcasting had stopped doing it the americans weren't doing it npr was running but they didn't have a budget to do anything i couldn't sell anything in america unless it was on cassette like the supermans and i do remember phyllis ringing me up and saying wow i've just seen a superman lives on a stall in kmart she was astonished and so was i christ what we're doing is selling in america wow and then the podcasting revolution happens and it's great because americans start rediscovering audio because america's the big market you know mm. it has to be the english-speaking market is america uk australia you know new zealand australasia if you like so america rediscovering how great spoken word audio is as a storytelling medium and i'm not talking about single voice readings i'm talking about drama mm. full cast yeah yeah, full cast, sound effects, the whole deal. And 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 when I talk about drama, I love radio drama. I think it's wonderful. I love single voice narrations. I think it's wonderful. I think there are afternoon plays on Radio 4, which are fantastic. But there's an awful lot of stuff that is very much stagey. It's very much stuck in the studio. It feels very safe. It's talking heads. It's not going anywhere very much. The issues it deals with are somewhat depressing and i want to be making the sort of blockbuster movie you take the kids to in the summer you you put on as your comfort food i'm very much temple stuff there was always that thing where i wanted to make it sound big and value added and you could lose yourself in that world and it made you i don't know it gave you somewhere to go and the thing about it is it feels hopelessly shallow i was in Radio Lights Entertainment, people like Amanda Yanucci and so on, doing all this really clever, clever stuff. And he has ever since. Incredibly clever. And some of his stuff is just amazing. But I couldn't do that. It's not my thing. It's not where my, my heart lives. My heart lives in a place where people like you say to me, I go to this for my happy place. Mm. And I've gone into Broadcasting House and somebody comes up to me and says, look, you don't know me, but I'm only a producer here because I heard Batman in the car with my mum picking up my brother from school. And I'm thinking, holy smoke, that's good. That's a wonderful thing. So, you know, I'm, I'm never going to be a Neil Gaiman um, in terms of, you know, having that sort of artistic immortality. I feel that I've achieved the mission of trying to make something which you will want to listen to which will make you sit in the car in the driveway when you've got home for 20 minutes to finish it. If that's all that's been achieved, then it's, it's you know, job done, isn't it? I do absolutely get what you mean about, like, the tools are more readily available for audio drama nowadays, but the quality, it, it is a concern. It's not to say people shouldn't make stuff. What I'm desperate for them to do is learn how to do it really, really well. I, w I want people to play with the medium, but I want them to learn to tell a story rivetingly and to make it worth 
the listener's time because time is the most precious commodity any of us have got because mm. we don't know how much we have got. Don't waste an hour of somebody's life with something you could have made better. And that's why on jobs from Independence Day through to Sandman, I'm still working long after the money's run out because if it's not perfect as far as I can get it, then there's that horrible possibility I've wasted an hour of somebody's life. I couldn't bear to do that. Just just as a, I guess, a parting question slash thought, you've obviously, you've worked with Douglas Adams, you finally got to produce and finish Hitchhikers. You're still working with Neil Gaiman. And you've also worked on other genre classics like Aliens. Um, you did an adaptation of American Werewolf in London and all the superhero radio plays you did for the BBC. Is there anything that you feel you can mention that you would like to do that just for some reason has never panned out or you just, you've, you've never thought to even try? Not a lot. Not a lot. I wanted desperately to do T.H. White's Once and Future King as a huge audio series and Brian Sibley beat me to it about 10 years ago. The only other, there was one other thing and I'm doing it, but I can't talk about it. If it works the way we're hoping it's going to work, it's going to be quite a big rock to drop in the pond, which is great, you know, because it's always fun as late in my life to still be able to make people think, oh, yeah, oh, that's a good idea. So, yeah, but that, that I can't talk about. But it should hopefully appear about this time next year with any luck, as well as more Sandman, God willing. You know what, Luke? We've talked to some pretty cool people so far on this podcast. The time I spent chatting with Dirk Mags, it may have topped them all. And I say that out of no disrespect. It was just, for me personally, it was something really special just to get to talk to a guy that has been literally in my ears for over 30 years at this point. Crazy stuff, really. Thank you so much uh, to Dirk for his time. Very, very busy individual. He's obviously working on a number of projects, including Sandman, an ongoing series with Audible, as various other irons in various fires. And so to take a couple of hours out of one of his rare days of downtime, I really, really appreciated it. But Luke, that was Independence Day UK. What did you make of it? It's a lot of fun, isn't it? Like the first half is a really good modern day version of the the idea of War of the Worlds. You know, Nicky Campbell, Mark Goodger, like the names of the time, I, I think going to Newsbeat and all that sort of stuff, it's really good. And actually, I think the, the drama that it builds at the end and the, the, the tension it builds, the action that it builds is really, really quite something. And then the second half just goes on from there and just takes it up to the next level. Genuinely brilliant action sequences through the audio medium that you as a listener can visualize quite easy that's the that's the tough part of radio play dramas is getting your audience to visualize what you are doing and i think what dirk mags does with this quite brilliantly so is he gives you a movie in audio format and you can be the director of it and cut the way that it looks and you can see it in your mind's eye he's very very good at that and it just creates a very, very special piece of audio. It's it's an hour that breezes by as well. There's no real let up in it, including the silence. A tremendous achievement. It is an audio movie. It is Dirk's kind of um, signature from a lot of those uh, kind of early comic book adaptations to the Batman, the Nightfall, the Superman Lives, Death of Superman, Spider-Man. 
and onwards through the stuff he did with Hitchhikers, which while already a full-cast audio production, the later Dirk Mag series gained an extra layer in an already very rich established audio tapestry. And what he's doing today with the Sandman series, with the Gibson Alien script that he produced as well as a live-action play, which he produced as a full-cast production. It would have been very, very easy for someone to have dashed off a quick tie-in audio play for Independence Day UK. It could have landed on anyone's plate. It could have gone to another producer, another creative force. It could have been done in America. You know, it could have been done somewhere other than the BBC, which in 1996 was kind of the last man standing of full cast audio dramas. There were still some in America, but they had waned greatly. There wasn't a lot of money for them. I mean, ZBS, who I mentioned earlier, are run as a charity. That's how they continue to produce stuff. But Dirk, as he said when I talked to him, he'll be there long after the money runs out. He'll be there making it the best it can be. I don't think Independence Day UK, in the spec of what it could be, in the spec of what it could do, given that he wasn't allowed to give away key plot points of the film and that he had to essentially tell a self-contained story without either A, spoiling the film, or B, having the British come up with a solution. Because the Americans have to win at the end. So in Dirks' version of it, it just has to have an ending that is satisfying, but is not the end of the invasion. I think he created a beautiful companion piece. I would argue it is a better... A sequel slash prequel slash side story to Independence Day UK than that resurgence movie. 100% it is. This captures what everyone loved about Independence Day and in some ways improves upon it, but doesn't overshadow it. He paints such a beautiful picture in your mind's eye when listening so that you can visualize everything that is going on and it, it just makes it a excellent companion piece to it D- to the point where like you know i kind of wish there was more of this sort of thing because you're like you're right as well that this could have just been cheap tie-in nonsense you know like some like comic book stuff that we did in the in the 90s where we just did like you know a four or five issue run of a comic book thing just to time with the movie and make you go and buy the movie but it's actually just a bit of cheap fluff that we're just knocking out this is effort this is this is care and this is attention and this is it, it it pays off in the end for it. There is very much a difference, I think, between uh, productions like Dirk's and some more pedestrian productions. Some productions would go, "Look, that man walking on the other side of the road over there, behind that flow of traffic." Someone such as Dirk will have them say, "Look at that man over there." And the soundscape painted around you will have fainter footsteps and then we'll have sounds of traffic in front and maybe some other ambience. Maybe there's some panning going on. The traffic is moving from right to left to give you an indication of which direction it is flowing. The first one is very easy. The whole look at that man walking over there on the other side of the traffic. The second one, much more difficult to achieve, but also you close your eyes and if your mind can do it, it will paint the picture. I've very much enjoyed this. And this this is this has been a long time coming for, for you and I to do this episode. And it's nice that we got we actually did get to do it because there was a where we were supposed to do this before we got to series six because that's when it was in our timeline. But it just got pushed back for various different reasons. Uh, I'm glad that we pushed it back for these reasons, so that we could get this version of the episode out. And I'm glad that we did get to do it. And on a personal level, I want to thank you for all the work that you have done for this episode. This is 
a bit of a passion project for yourself. And I think that the hard work is is showing off in the final products. I've had a lot of fun researching. I've had a lot of fun digging up audio clips, all of which you'll have heard at this point of uh, finding examples of early radio, other bits of Dirk's work, finding the Radio 1 jingles. That was a real boon to find that someone had uploaded a whole load of them. That was great. Please don't sue us, BBC. But just to help build that bit of texture and just create that kind of 1996 picture. But I think we'll wrap it up for this episode. Thank you all so much for listening. You all rule. You can find us on Twitter at underconsolepod, on Instagram at under.console, and you can send us an email to feedback at underconsultation.com. And if you want to find out what our guest, the wonderful Dirk Mags, is up to, you can find him on Twitter at Dirk Mags. And if you want to chat with us about this episode, other episodes, Independence Day UK, if maybe you were just thinking... I'd like to check out some more audio movies and you want to chat with other people that listen to that sort of thing, you can do so over on our Discord, details of which can be found in the show notes. I'm actually overjoyed with how many fans of audio drama we have over there. It's a lovely, supportive little community, including Adam, who was instrumental in putting me in touch with Dirk Max for that interview. Thank you so much for that, Adam. And if you want to support this podcast monetarily, you can do so over on our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash under console pod, where you'll get access to UCP Extra, which is this show format, but about other shows from the 80s, 90s and 2000s, and our monthly community show, UCN Under Console Nation. And at the five pound level, you will get next week's episode one week early and ad-free at the £10 level, you'll get a little bit extra. Ash, what do you get? Or well, at the £10 level, you get our Under Console Nation Patreon pack, which contains a glittery golden joystick waggler mug filled with retro trading cards, sweeties alongside Under Consultation badges and stickers. And that's sent direct to your door. And you might want to be getting in on that one week early and ad-free bonus because, touch wood, next week's episode will be... Our return to the main timeline, and yes, that Dave Perry incident episode. Mario Gate is here. It's finally upon us, but before we get to that, a shout out to those £10 backers, Xanderthal, William Tom, The Amazing Cliff, Super Sexy David Fisher, Simon Sean, Sarah, aka Pink Lithium, Richard, Reese, Nick, Misha, Matty, Boo, Mark, Link, Kevin, Jamie, Ian, I Am Cheadle, Harriet Manga Girl, Gordon Debster, Gordon Brands, David Palmer, Darkside73, Chrissy Two Sticks, Arcadia Wild Bill, Andrew, Adam, and Andy. Thank you all so much for listening. We will see you in seven days' time as we take on a little bit of a Christmas pub quiz and one final controversial challenge. Take care, everyone. Good night. That's Backwater, a new single from them on the Gorgon Solar record label on this occasion, out of, uh, well, Bristol, actually. And that's called In These Last Days I See That First Smile Band from Belfast, I think, certainly somewhere in London. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.